Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition, another installment, excuse me, of the Bat Around here on October 31st. Happy Halloween, Zach. How are you today? I'm great. It's a nice Halloween. It's nice and cold. I bet you don't like that, but... Yeah, the first thing Zach said to me when I came in the studio today was, how is it? it's nice and cold out there. How are you feeling about it? And I'm not feeling good about it, but... It's going to be close to the 70s next weekend. I'll be down. Uh, programming note: while while I'm talking about it, I'll be uh, I'll be down at uh, the beach. My dad lives down there in Fenwick Island. I'll be down visiting him since I didn't get to see him for his birthday. So I will be uh, out of town. So there is no show next week, and we're going to play a little bit of golf. And it's supposed to be right around 65 to 70 degrees all weekend. So I'm looking forward to that. Looking forward to getting away from this cold weather for a little bit. It's going to be nice here too. It's not like we. It's not like Fenwick Island is like. In Florida, it's two and a half hours away on on the same coast. So, anyway, welcome to the Bat Around. We've got a great show coming to you today from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. And believe it or not, it's our first show without a game, and we have a ton of stuff to talk about today. A ton of stuff. Right now, I'm just going to jump into some Orioles news that, that, that happened pretty recently. Uh, first, on, first and foremost, the Orioles claimed infielder Yomer Sanchez off waivers from the White Sox. The 2019 Gold Glove winner at second base. Um, not sure what that means for Hanser Alberto. Um, but if they pick up the optional in Iglesias, which they need to do by tomorrow, with he and Sanchez up the middle, you have, and then either May. Um, Mullins or Hayes in center field, you have some really strong defense up the middle. It's going to help a young pitching staff in 2021. I love the waiver claim. Defense helps pitching. It makes your team better. And he's got a 245 career slash line, hit 255 last year. So not not the greatest with the stick, but he's not really going to hurt you either. Clearly a glove first guy. How are, how are you feeling about that pickup? Oh, I love it. I think Yolmer Sanchez is a great player. And and I know he's not a great bat. Like you just said, his slash line, as his career goes, is not very good. It's it's average. But he's a second baseman, and second baseman in this day and age aren't really necessarily the best hitter on your team. They're not even probably the five or six best hitters on your team. So, you know, you need a guy like this in your lineup that's so glove first. Him and Jose Iglesias would be the greatest double play combo the Orioles have had in a long time, maybe since Hardy and Scope uh, a long time ago now. But Yomer Sanchez, like you said, gold glove winner. He knows how to pick it. Him and Iglesias would just be perfect together. So I love the pickup. Uh, you know, he doesn't have much power, but he can hit for contact and get on base a little bit. He strikes out a ton. Mm-hmm. Only concern with him. But, you know, I think they got him for the glove, and it makes sense. You know, the Orioles have not had some really glove-first guys at second base over the past couple years. Hanser Alberto is not a very good glove, so I'm glad to see this pickup. Well, certainly um, there has been a long history for the Orioles. Um, You go back to Belanger and Davey Johnson, you go to Ripken and Ripken. You go to Ripken and Alomar, Hardy and Scope, uh, Tejada and Roberts. Tejada was... He was adequate at shortstop. Not the greatest, but not the worst. Um, so now you're looking at possibly Iglesias and Sanchez up the middle, and that's going to be that's going to be a slick fielding middle infield. Uh, Rock Abaco was the one who I who I got the news from on Twitter, and according to Rock, known much more for his defense, Sanchez won a Gold Glove in 2019 after posting a league-leading 11 defensive runs saved and a major's best 5.0 ultimate zone rate uh, over 150 games. Um, 
but he batted 252, 318, 321, and 555 plate appearances and was deemed too expensive for the White Sox. They let him go. The Giants picked him up. Um, and then the, the Giants let him go, and then the White Sox picked him back up. Uh, Sanchez had registered 10 defensive runs saved in a 6.3 ultimate zone rating over 3,464 career innings at second base. Prior to rejoining the White Sox, he's a career 245-300-360 hitter in seven seasons. That's batting average, OBP, slugging percentage. Uh, again, not picking him up for the bat, picking him up to play, potentially play second base, um, and really put some stellar defense behind a young pitching staff. And keep in mind, Hanser Alberto can make anywhere from 2.1 to 4.3 million through arbitration this year. Uh, if the Orioles are nervous about picking up Iglesias' option for 3.5 million, they're thinking a lot about whether or not they're going to pick up Alberto's. So that remains to be seen. Nice pickup for the Orioles there off a of waiver claim. Usually, usually you don't see a, that caliber of a player on a waiver claim. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened. Uh, another. Not so great news. Uh, 2025th round pick Carter Ballmer was apparently having a great instructional camp, but it ended with an elbow injury that resulted in Tommy John surgery. He's going to miss at least a full year, if not a year and a half. Um, the good news is he's 18 years old, so he has time to bounce back. Um, really athletic guy who a lot of uh, pundits said was not going to sign uh, in the, if he got drafted this year, that he was going to go to college. The Orioles gave him a lot of money to forego his uh, commitment. I think it was to Texas Christian. Um, the Orioles gave him a lot of money. So he's going to be in their plans in the future, but he's got to wait 12 to 18 months. The, the bad thing here, Zach, with that is that he didn't get to play any pro ball this year. Didn't get to play for I, the Ironbirds or, or the Gulf Coast League or anything like that because all of minor league baseball was canceled this year. And now he misses next year too. And potentially – Part of the following season, though, I would expect him to be ready for spring training 2022. Um, so you're losing essentially a year and a half to two years of development with a guy who you aren't going to see play in a minor league game until 20 for two more years. So uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, it sucks to see. I mean, any guy who is Tommy John, it's 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 very unfortunate because elbow injuries just kind of can destroy a pitcher's career if it doesn't go well. You know, I'm not saying that will happen to Balmer, but you know, I, I really hope it doesn't. You know, he's he's a fifth-round pick, and he was a quality guy. He was in the top 200 of prospects for this draft. So, you know, the Orioles picked him, and they and they really tried to get him away from his commitment, and they did that. And, you know, it all looked like it was working out well. He was hitting 95 in the instructionals. He looked good. And then it just unfortunately happened to have Tommy John. So this happens to a lot of pitchers. It's probably better it happens now than two or three years down the road when he's in the minors with the Shorebirds or the, you know, the Keys or wherever it is. So, you know, maybe maybe he's here in seven years if you look at it like that. Now he's going to be pushed back probably seven years till his MLB debut. So it, it's unfortunate. The guy's got really good stuff, and he's a really, really exciting pitching prospect. And you never want to see any guy get Tommy John. It, it really can destroy a career if it doesn't go well. But I'm not saying that will happen. Well, hopefully it's not seven years. Seven years is a long time. I believe after six years in the minors, you can elect to become a free agent. Yeah. Um, I think the hope here is that he kind of hits the ground running coming back from Tommy John's surgery, and you could expect him to maybe debut in five years. Um, But even then, you have to get through the surgery and through the rehab first. But like they said, athletic guy who has a ton of makeup. Um, I think he throws three quality pitches for strikes. So... It's a tough blow to the Orioles right now, but better at 18 than at 24 when you're ready to pitch in the majors and you you lose a year or two. Um, moving on, David Hess, Brandon Klein, and Cole Stewart all cleared waivers 
and they all refuse their outright assignments to the minor leagues, making them all free agents. We're going to talk to Joe Trezza, uh, beat writer for the uh, for MLB.com, for the Orioles. Um, we're going to talk to him later in the program regarding those decisions and if we can see something else like that coming um, from other players. Uh, Rock Kabako did say that there's a good chance that Cole Stewart could rejoin the club. Same thing with Brandon Klein. Just as much a chance that they could rejoin the club as go elsewhere. But who can blame these guys for wanting to test the free agent market? Uh, Cole Stewart was a first-round pick, had an opportunity to be in the Orioles starting rotation, but his one start got pushed back because of the Marlins COVID outbreak, and then he decided to opt out because he's a type 1 diabetic. Uh, And then Brandon Klein, small sample size, only pitched five innings, three games, walked the batter in each each appearance, but his ERA was about 180, I think. So he had a little bit of success. Maybe some team wants to nibble and give him a big league opportunity. If not, I'm, I'm sure he'd be back with the Orioles. David Hess, Good guy, huge calves, uh, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I don't know what team's going to have interest. I mean, he, he gave up twenty-eight home runs uh, in twenty nineteen in like, like what forty innings or something like that, and then, and then he comes back and didn't pitch well for the Orioles this pa- in the truncated season. I don't know that that David has has much of a big league career to look forward to, but teams might like his arm and think that they can do something with him. We got to move on. We got to get this thing rolling along here. Dodgers win the World Series in six games uh, with a with a game six win, three to one. That does not come without controversy. But before we get to that, we got to talk about that game four from last Saturday because that game was absolutely nuts. Runs were scored in the postseason record eight consecutive half innings. Every time the Rays scored, they either got within a run, tied the game, or took the lead. The Dodgers scored in the next half inning. It was absolutely insane. Dodgers scored seven runs. All of them were scored with two outs. They scored all seven runs in that game with two outs. They take that lead going into the bottom of the ninth inning. They're up seven to six. Uh, there's one out. Kiermaier gets fisted, a jam shot, uh, saws the bat off at the handle, but gets a base hit in, in the center in the right center field just beyond the diving second baseman's outstretched glove. Then the next guy gets out. Then Randy Arosarena walks. And Arosarena, hell of an at-bat. He's down in that count, 1-2, works a seven-pitch at-bat to, to draw the walk. But then who's coming to the plate? Brett Phillips. Brett Phillips, who was once a top prospect, who's on his third team in three years, was left off the ALCS roster and is now getting just his third postseason at-bat, yet to register a uh, postseason hit. He comes to the plate, falls behind 1-2 in the count. All three pitches he took None of those pitches were in the strike zone. Uh, strikes one and two were close, but when you look at the pitch track, not in the strike zone. He could have been ahead 3-0 and said he's down in the count 1-2. Kenley Jansen, uh, Will Smith, the catcher, calls for a pitch uh, up in the zone, up and maybe even out of the zone. Kenley Jansen leaves it middle in, right in a major league hitter's wheelhouse. And go ahead, Zach. Tell us what happened. Yeah, he hit it in the right field, the base hit, and two runs scored. And, you know, obviously some errors on the part of the Dodgers there that helped that happen. But the Rays win, and that was just a fantastic, fantastic finish. Brett Phillips, like you said, you know, played for the Royals. He's played, he's been, he's been around, you know, former mm-hmm. top prospect, but he never really found his footing in the league. He's never really been much of a player. And, you know, he, he comes up here and he, he fists the ball, basically. Didn't hit it hard, probably, you know, 70, 80 mile an hour exit velo. There was nothing on it, but he was able 
able to get it in the right field. And, you know, left-handed hitters love the ball middle in. That's one of their favorite spots to mm-hmm. hit, especially middle in low. This one was middle in high, but he was still able to get his hand, hands around on it. And that's definitely not a place you can leave a pitch to a left-handed hitter. I don't care if it's Brett Phillips. I don't care if it's David Ortiz. You can't leave a pitch right there if you're Kenley Jansen. And like we talked about before last show, Kenley Jansen had a pretty decent postseason. He wasn't bad at all. And he kind of turns things around because he hadn't had great postseasons in the recent past. So, you know, he was pitching well. He was probably due for a bad game here to come. And he he just had one, unfortunately, that happened right there. And, And Brett Phillips got a good hit. Well, and the crazy thing is, what people know Brett Phillips for is his laugh. And that shows you where your career kind of is at the major league level when you're more so known for your laugh than anything you've ever done on the field. But people are going to remember now who Brett Phillips is because of this, the biggest hit of his career and the biggest moment in his career. Gets the game-winning hit. There were runners on first and second. Kiermaier on that base hit was going to score. It was going to happen. Chris Taylor charges the ball. He boots it. Finally picks it up, throws it home. A Rosa Reina from first base is trying to score on this hit because of the error. Stumbles, falls, rolls, gets back up, takes two steps back towards third, but ends up scoring because Will Smith went for a sweep tag and the ball bounced off his glove, went away, and guess who was out of position? Kenley Jansen. He's down the he's halfway up the third baseline watching watching the play happen. So standing behind the catcher like you're supposed to do, pitching gotta cover home. Pitching one on one. You gotta back up wherever the ball's going. If it's going to third, you back up the third baseman. If it's going home, you back up the catcher. And he was completely out of position. A Rosa Reina scores, uh, and Brett Phillips is the hero. Now you move to game six. Game game five, Kershaw dominated. Kershaw dominated, recorded uh, two consecutive postseason wins for the first time in his 13-year career. Uh, the uh, What's his name? Tyler Glass now gave up three runs in the first two innings, four runs over five innings. The Dodgers win that game 4-2. to two. They, never, they, they took the lead, never looked back. Game six, and this is the game I want to talk about. It's the deciding game. And you have Blake Snell in the mouth, former Cy Young Award winner, and he is dealing. He is dealing. Five and a third innings pitched. He's given up two hits, no walks, no runs, nine strikeouts. He's thrown 73 pitches. He has a one nothing lead. Randy Rosarena hit a home run in the first inning to give the Rays that one nothing lead. And after he gave up that second hit, which was like a, a, a little bit of a jam shot, not, not, not a 70 to 80 mile an hour exit velo on a base hit to center field, and Kevin Cash pulls him. What are you doing? And, and, and you can sit there and you can say, oh, well, hindsight's twenty twenty, and anybody can second-guess when it doesn't go the way you wanted it to. No, as soon as he took him out, the Twitter sphere went bananas. There is no excuse, no excuse to remove a pitcher in a game you need to win who's thrown 73 pitches, has an out in the sixth inning, and has nine strikeouts. The next... Four batters are 0 for 8 with seven strikeouts in that game against Blake Snell. And you take him out because a calculator told you to do it. I'm tired of it. We talked about it last, year with the re- last week with the rest of Estrada. We talked about it the week before with Leo Mazzoni. You need starting pitching to win. You need starting pitching. That bullpen has been absolutely taxed. You take out Snell to bring in Nick Anderson, who has given up... A run in six straight postseason appearances. They see him every game. 
and he hasn't been effective. What is going to be different this time around? You let the Dodgers off the hook. You let them off the hook. They were sitting there praising the Lord, the gods above because you took out Blake Snell. Kevin Cash lost that game. Kevin Cash, no, yes, yes. The Rays need to score more than one run. They need to score more than one run. But Kevin Cash lost that game by taking out Blake Snell. There's no, there's no getting around it. And my knee-jerk reaction was if I'm the owner, I pull Kevin Cash into my office and I say, what the hell were you thinking? And if he doesn't have a legitimate reason, you're fired. I'll find somebody else. That is going a bit far. That's, again, that's why it's a knee-jerk reaction. But it's egregious. It was egregious. That was... I was red in the face. I'm not even a Rays fan, man. I'm just a baseball fan. I like the Dodgers. What are you doing? What are you... And I know I'm late. I know I'm late to this party because it's Saturday and this happened on Tuesday. Guys, I don't have a show till Saturday. So this is my first time to stand on my soapbox and go off about it and I'm doing it. Because Kevin Cash, sometimes you need to put the binder away and you need to just trust your eyes. And everybody's eyes that were watching that game knew that Blake Snell was the best player on the field in that game. No business taking him out of the game. You cost your team the World Series. Maybe they lose in Game 7. Maybe that saved the World Series because of what we're about to talk about with knucklehead Justin Turner. But, oh, my God, stop taking pitchers out just because of analytics. If they're dominating, let them dominate. Moving on. Moving on. Justin Turner tests positive for COVID during the game. He didn't test positive during the game. They got the results during the game. So they, they, they tested him. His results came back inconclusive. They let him play. Now, look, they shouldn't have let him play without knowing whether or not he was going to be pos- positive or negative. But apparently these inconclusive tests happen all the time, and it's usually much ado about nothing. So they, 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 they did another test, sent the samples back to, the, to whatever lab they send it to, and they find out in the sixth inning during his at-bat that he tested positive for COVID. And we, we got we to move. I know. I know. We got to move. Um, so they take him out of the game. He should never been in the lineup. Should never been in the lineup. The Dodgers go on to win the World Series, and Justin Turner is told by security, do not leave isolation. You must follow protocol. And he adamantly refused, went out on the field wearing his mask, took pictures without a mask on, high-fiving and hugging his teammates, and holding the, 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 the commissioner's trophy on the one hand, I, you, you, you can't do it. You can't do it. Not with what's going on. You can't do it. On the other hand, it's the freaking World Series, man. And you are the heart and soul of that team. You're the longest tenure position player on the, on the Dodgers. I couldn't do it. I don't think I would have been able to, man. I don't think I would have been able to stay in isolation and not celebrate the first world championship in the franchise in 32 years with my teammates. Zach, your thoughts? I look at it both ways too. I, you know, I, I do think he was irresponsible in doing what he did, but I think if he comes out there with a mask on and he stays, you know, a good bit away from all of his teammates and he celebrates kind of from the side, I think that would have been much more acceptable. You know, he doesn't come in close contact with anyone. He doesn't shake hands. He doesn't give high fives. He doesn't touch anybody. You know, he he kissed his wife right after. Like, you know, just a lot of touching and a lot of celebrating way too close to people without a mask. And I, I think he would have done it 
much better, and he probably would have gotten wouldn't have gotten criticized nearly as much if he had just gone out there with a mask on and stayed socially distanced from the entire team because it, it is irresponsible. And I'm sure you'll hear in the next few days of some Dodgers coming down with cases if it does end up being reported. You know, there there was no baseball left to be played; it was over. So it's not like this will affect you know how how the MLB season finishes, obviously. But you know, it, it's irresponsible. But it is the World Series, and that's the one excuse you can make for it. But I'm I'm not making any excuses for Justin. I don't, I don't think he did much right, but, you know, it, it, there is the defense that it is the World Series. So I, I see it both ways, too. Absolutely. Now, we got to get rolling along here. We're running a little bit late getting Stan on the line. Uh, we are going to talk more about Justin Turner and the Dodgers World Series. We have Stan coming up in just a minute. Uh, then at 10.50, we have Tim Neverett, who's a radio and TV, t- TV play-by-play man for um, the Dodgers. For the Dodgers. Thank you. And then at 11.35, we have Joe Trezza. Tony LaRusso just got hired by the White Sox. Kind of an odd move. Uh, 76-year-old taking over a young team like that. And, Zach, you kind of want to sound off a little bit about this. Yeah, so this is nothing against Tony LaRusa. You know, I, I have nothing against him. He's a Hall of Fame manager. This is a manager who's had a lot of wins in his career. He's famous. He's in the Hall of Fame. He's, you know, a, a very accomplished manager by all respects. But the reason I have an issue with this is Tony LaRusa replaced a guy in Rick Renneria that had led the White Sox to a playoff berth this year, and it had proved them easily over the last three years they keep getting more and more wins every year better and better winning percentage and they just keep improving so to fire a guy like Renneria in the first place I disagree with but then I I say okay let's see who they go out and hire maybe an AJ Hinch or someone like that would be a good hire and they go out and hire a guy who's perhaps maybe the oldest school guy they could have hired you know he, he has no concept of the the newer analytics in baseball and the way baseball is played he hasn't managed in nine years this guy does not know anymore about how you know modern baseball is played and this is nothing against him but it's just that the fact that he hasn't managed in so long I'm not sure what he can bring to the table that another guy couldn't have I know he's a great manager. I know he has a lot of wins. But to fire a guy who is accomplished as Rick Renneria was and then to replace him with a guy who probably won't bring analytics to an analytically focused ball club in the White Sox, it doesn't make sense to me. It, ju- it just doesn't make sense to me. This is a not very good hire, in my opinion. And I, I think some people would tend to agree, but um, you know, for maybe for different reasons. Well, on, I think that when it comes down to baseball, Tony La Russa knows what exactly. he's doing. He knows how to win baseball games. and That's not about his, his, his resume, his acumen, his baseball IQ. It's not about that. It's about his ability to connect and relate to a team that's super young and super talented and has a ton of personality. They bat flip. They carry on. Uh, it, it's fun, but he's a little bit of, of old school and is that going to mesh well in that clubhouse? How's he going to react to the first Tim Anderson bat flip? That's, well, that's what I want to know. What I will say to that, and I want to get Stan's opinion on this, what I will say to that is he had Ricky Henderson. And Ricky Henderson was doing that back when most other people weren't. He was doing it all the time. And with that in mind, I really want to know your opinion on this, Stan. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, guys. How are you doing, Zach? I'm doing great, Stan. How are you? Good, good. I was listening to you there. I, I think you're, you're missing the, sort of the main point to me, at least. And, and I, I'm not a huge Rich Renteria fan, so... I feel bad for him how he's lost his last two jobs, you know, that he's brought in in sort of that, um, you know, middle-of-the-road job where you're you're trying to take a team from bad to good, uh, and do, do you survive the good to really good? 
uh, and have a chance to win. So I feel bad for him in that uh, part of the equation. But this this is born out of the fact that Jerry Reinsdorf, who's 84 years old, has regretted for a long, long time and has spoke publicly about that, thinks the worst movie ever made in baseball was making Ken Harrelson his general manager and letting Ken Harrelson, who was a broadcaster previous to that, ex-baseball player, ex-major league player, uh, fire Tony La Russa in 1986. Mm-hmm. He saw what La Russa's career was like. The two of them have remained somewhat friendly, and that friendship was even rekindled more when both of them uh, engineered being on the Hall of Fame Veterans Committee and put in, they they pushed in Harold Baines into the Hall of Fame. And I'm not going to, that, that's a different conversation. I don't think it's particularly evil that they did that, but they really cemented uh, a rekindling of their friendship during that effort. And uh, as, as this thing got underway, uh, I think the biggest problem they have is they've sort of ripped the heart out of the baseball people inside the White Sox organization that have built that team that, A, probably wouldn't have fired Renteria if left to their own devices, but, B, even if they would have fired Renteria, I think they would have really rather uh, hired somebody in the A.J. Hinch mode. Uh, and I think uh, on a C level, I think the beneficiary of all this, the Detroit Tigers, who got their their next manager for maybe 8 to 12 years in A.J. Hinch, and they signed him yesterday. Um, I just think it's not a particularly ingenious uh, uh, hire at all. Well, and, and Stan, what this makes me think about is, you know, the uh, the White Sox hired Renteria as they were a rebuilding ball club. They helped him lead the helm, getting them back into contention, and then they fired him to get somebody who, who they felt, or at least the owner felt, could put them over the top. Now, it seems like, based on reading that Jeff Passan article uh, from yesterday, it seems like Tony La Russa and Reinsdorf, and they're all part of an old boys club that looks out for each other. That's that's what I got from that article. Um, but do you think that this, ha- that this has any kind of impact on what the Orioles are doing with Brandon Hyde, where they hired him to, to oversee this rebuild on the field? And do you think that they could potentially do the same thing and move on to somebody who gets them over the top once they get back ready to contend? Well, it depends. And if, if you had read my piece, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing you, I'm serious. In my print piece was that uh, if I had to name a 2020 MVP on the Orioles, it would have been Brandon Hyde. I mm-hmm. thought Brandon Hyde really distinguished himself as something more, more than a rich renteria this past year, the way he comported himself, the way he handled the media, and and the way he handled his team and the way his team fights for him and plays hard for him. So I think Hyde's in a different situation, but I think the, I think the, the thing I missed in my piece because I was running into a word problem, uh, you know, word count problem, was mentioning how most teams that hire a guy like Hyde, he's never there when it's time to eat the bread that you make, you know, that you bake. Right. Uh, but I think Brandon Hyde really had an excellent 2020 season uh, because somewhere along the line, you have to exceed expectations 
a little bit. And I thought the Orioles this year exceeded expectations a little bit. Yeah, Stan, in my opinion, I, I think Brandon Hyde was hired years ago because of his his analytics approach and his player development approach, two things he's very, very good at. But do you think when the Orioles start getting more veterans on this team, they sign some free agents, do you think Brandon Hyde will be able to to help those guys and lead those guys the same way he leads these younger players as far as player development goes? Well, I'm not so sure the Orioles are, are uh, even real close to bringing in any of these veteran guys that you talk about because veteran guys make a lot more money than, than the Oriole guys are going to make over the next couple of years. Um, and that's a, that's a topic for a different day, but I, I'm, I'm not concerned about that at all because I think Brandon Hyde is establishing himself and creating a persona that is going to be popular with, with whatever age group you're talking about. You know, I mean, look at, and I know he doesn't have a lot of leverage to get out of line and then and then still be out of line, but remember the Chris Davis situation with Brandon in 2019 yep. where he went after him and all that, and the two of them patched up their differences. And, you know, I mean, Davis, he, he flipped out for because he was embarrassed. Uh, but, you know, I think that the way they've moved on in their relationship and the way Brandon has navigated that gives me uh, no doubt that he can handle a veteran team. Well, and speaking of handling veterans, uh, the Orioles have, they, they made a move the other day, and they also have a decision that they have to make by tomorrow. The move that they made was claiming Yolmer Sanchez off of waivers from the Chicago White Sox. He's the 2019 Gold Glove winner at second base. Uh, had 11 runs, defensive runs saved the last season. Uh, 10 defensive runs saved over his career. Uh, what does this mean for Hanser Alberto? Because he's going to get a, a hefty raise through arbitration, and the Orioles are looking to That's cut it. funds. It's interesting. I was reading Molesky's column uh, on MassInSports.com, and Steve said that uh, the the arbitration figures could range anywhere from two point three to four point one for uh, yeah. for uh, Alberto, uh, and that's a big that's a big gap for such a low salary. You know what I mean? And I'm mm-hmm. a low salary. You know that would probably pay us the three of us for the next ten years. Um, or 15 years, but um, I, you know, I'm not quite sure how to read this, uh, or whether it's it means that they're going to keep Alberto and move him to shortstop and play this guy at second, or and, and I cannot remember him. I know that they moved Mancata. They moved Mancata from second to third to make room for him at second base, Yomar Sanchez. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at one time, he played third base, and I'm not sure wh- whether they liked what they saw there or what, but they knew Mancata was a better third baseman than second baseman. So I'm not sure what it, what it references, how it impacts Iglesias. I think, I think this club wants to be better defensively, and I think Gilmar Sanchez, there's no question, with him at second base, they're going to be significantly better than they are 
with Alberto at second. Yeah, yeah Stan, and, and there are multiple guys in this infield who are going to have to be paid around two, three, four million dollars. Hanser Alberto, obviously, we know will go through arbitration and, and get a figure in those numbers. And then Jose Iglesias, the option is three point five million. And then Yolmer Sanchez is also a guy who's arbitration eligible, so they will have to pay him around two million dollars in that in that you know range of figures. So. Do you think that getting a guy like Yomer Sanchez and, and having to pay him around the same figures as Jose Iglesias means the Orioles will be willing to dish out that $3.5 million to Iglesias? I, I'm, I'm not I, – I, you know, I just read that, uh, about the Sanchez move right before you guys called, so I was looking at his baseball reference page, and I'm, tr- I'm, I'm not capable of really reading the tea leaves on that yet. I'm not sure it impacts Iglesias. It seems to me it's more of an impact on Ruiz or Ruiz or uh, Alberto. Well, yeah. uh, you know, I, I'm I'm sure that I, you know I'm I'm hopeful that they'll they'll bring Sanchez um, Iglesias back, but I, you know I'm hopeful, but I'm not quite sure where this fits in the mix. But I think they made themselves a little better. And probably can sign him more in the two million dollar range than three point five. So, you know, I don't know whether he plays much shortstop or has in his career anywhere along the line. But um, he clearly is a, a plus plus defender, and I think the Orioles, as they continue, look, they're going to have hopefully a healthy uh, Trey Mancini next year uh, and a, and a Ryan Mountcastle. I think they feel that, although, I mean, they're not cocky that they're going to have a great offense next year. I think they they are factoring in some of those things. But, boy, it would sure be nice to have Iglesias back next year. Well, yeah, and and you mentioned Steve Molesky's article, Stan. We had Steve on the show last week right after uh, we got off the line with you. Uh, yep. And the $2.3 million was if... It was a sixty-game season. Then it was something like two point eight or like three point something million if it was like one hundred and twenty games. Okay. And four, okay. And 4. All right, that makes sense. For a full okay, season. I didn't quite. Okay. Um, but I wasn't factoring that in. But yeah. what Steve mentioned in that article, and I'm sure you remember from reading it, is that Alberto's do that big raise. Rio Ruiz is still pre-arbitration eligible. So he's going to make around the league minimum next year. So if I'm reading the tea leaves here, I think the Orioles pick up Iglesias' option by tomorrow. I think they want to pair him with uh, Sanchez, Sanchez up, up the middle. Play Alberto at third. Well, no, I think they want to play. They want to play Ruiz at Ruiz third. Ruiz at third. And That's I think third. that that Alberto is going to be the odd man out because they don't want to pay him uh, because he, he's. He doesn't. Yeah, do much. I would. I would think that that makes the most sense. I mean, Alberto, while 2019 was a really nice story, and he's a terrific guy, and he's a popular teammate, and he shows some leadership skills. His overall skill set, you see, why he was not stationed somewhere prior to getting to Baltimore. You just see a little bit of the warts here and there. His offensive numbers, while looking good, you know, numerically, we we see the warts through that, and he's not a guy that's going to produce a lot of runs. Just a quick note on Sanchez as far as positions goes. Uh, he's yep. played 402 games at second base. He's played 197 at third and only 14 at shortstop. And he's actually okay. played in the so outfield a little bit too. 
couple games. Yeah, I think they see him as the second baseman. I think they year. do too. Yeah. I think that he's a, he, I think he's a bridge the gap guy and somebody who's going to help that young pitching staff with some solid defense up the I, middle. I think I think you're right. I think Iglesias, you know, and and I'm not sure. Maybe they can go back to Iglesias and and get him to sign, you know, chop five hundred thousand dollars off, or or you know, remember they're gonna they're gonna be paying him. Based, you know, in other words, he's he's gonna they're gonna uh, they're gonna keep the option on him based on a three point five million for one hundred and sixty two games. I can tell you right now that there's not a chance in hell they're gonna play one hundred and sixty two games. I agree with you. I think the number is gonna be like a hundred or to one hundred and ten games or something like that. Yeah, you're you're probably you're probably right, Stan. Um, and yeah. so it'll be a prorated for for all of them, which is yeah, why so Chris Davis is still on the team. He's going to be like two point one million or something like that, and and Sanchez they'll probably get where uh, you know it's another two million, and like you say, Ruiz will probably be like you know nine hundred thousand dollars to a million dollars. Yeah, on a pro-rated season. Well, uh, Ruiz is probably be even less than that because about five hundred. Yeah, because he's going to get yeah. right around the league minimum. Now, okay. Stan, I know we have a tight window with you today. I know you got yeah. some, some stuff to do. I do want to ask you um, about your thoughts on Justin Turner, pulled from the, from Game Six after testing positive for COVID, refusing to stay in isolation, coming out and celebrating with his teammates, and even having pictures taken of him with the Commissioner's Trophy with his team, without. A mask on, um, you know. One of the reasons sure. you're not in the studio with us is because of the whole the whole pandemic. Yeah. How do you yeah. feel about how he handled himself? Well, it's not just that how he handled himself. I think you know it calls into question. I, I really find it hard to believe that they found out in the sixth inning or seventh inning that this second test came back. I wonder if the, if they didn't. You know, there's so much money at stake to get that game on and get that season finished before the presidential election. You know, can you imagine if all of a sudden they had, uh, you know, I, I wonder if Major League Baseball is somehow complicit in, in some of this and that they sort of knew he was positive entering that game. Uh, that's all I can come up with, you know. Yeah, that's that's putting a lot of onus on um, what one player can do to impact a game. I mean, it is Justin Turner. He's he's their third baseman. He's an all star. He's the heart and soul of that franchise. Their longest. I mean, he's hit twelve. Player. I think he's hit twelve postseason home runs Most for the of Dodgers. I mean, he's he's been a big time performer. I I'll be quite blunt. I think it was handled uh, very poorly by just about everybody involved with it. And I, I think I agree. I think they. I I think they. And I think that will probably speak to him. Him or I. You know what I could see happening is that the Dodgers somehow get fined. You know, a million dollars or something like that, which is chump change for the Dodgers, um, and they sort of wash their hands of it that they penalize somebody. I just think, on an interpersonal level, I think the fact that he can't, you know, it was interesting that he wasn't out there in the initial five minutes or fifth or ten minutes when they were interviewing Kershaw and they were interviewing Luke and Seeger. And then all of a sudden, when the picture came, you saw him sitting there, and at first I said, well, he's got his mask on, and the people right around him sort of had their masks on. But Dave Roberts was laying right next to him, 
and didn't have his mask on. Mm-hmm. And then they came back from commercial break, and you could see him sort of partying. And is that really fair to all the other people that he could potentially have infected? I, you know, uh, we live in sort of a, uh, you know, I feel like I live in a parallel universe uh, between what's right and wrong, and uh, somehow we've got to navigate that. But that's a much longer topic for another day. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Stan, we thank you so much for joining the program, even with uh, shortened time for you this weekend. I, I, I just had something i got to accomplish. i got to meet my wife somewhere. Uh, wife comes first, 100%. Back. No, we have to be back at noon for a virtual wedding, so it really helps me out. Normally, I've, I've got the half-hour uh, window for you guys. You know, all right? We appreciate have your time. Have a good show. Tell Joe Trezor I said hello, all I, right? I absolutely will. Have a great weekend. Thanks, right. Stan. See you, Zach. Thank Take you. care. Bye-bye. And that was Stan the Fan, Charles, joining us as always for his weekly segment at 1020. A um, couple things I didn't get to ask Stan about I really wanted to know were, was was his opinion on um, the quick hook for Blake Snell. You all know my opinion on that. I, I was pretty, pretty outspoken about that. Uh, I also wanted to get his take on Randy Arosarena. And we talked to Orestes Estrade about this last week. Randy Rosarena turned into a superstar right before our eyes. Now, it's up to him to, to maintain that. Now, if he, if he comes into next year and it, by June is hitting 211 with eight home runs, uh, you know, that's probably, he, he, he's regressed a little bit. But he set the Major League postseason record. He hit 10 home runs this postseason. He was the MVP of that team the entire postseason run that was that was the guy he was the guy they wanted to play in all the big situations and oftentimes he found him in that situation and came through Randy Rosarena is a type of guy that they need to lock up now and I know it's early I know it's early but the bottom line is he's a guy that he's going to go someplace else when he hits free agency. It's going to happen. The Tampa Bay Rays do not pay their young superstars. They just don't. You look at Carl Crawford. You look at Evan Longoria. Evan Longoria is the, the exception. Evan, he, he got the big exception before he ever even played a major league game. He was game. there for a long time. He was there for a long time. He, he's the exception. But but look at guys like Carl Crawford and James Shields and Chris Archer. All these guys are gone. And it's a credit to Tampa Bay's farm system, to their drafting, to their scouting, their analytics, that they've been relevant for 13 years now. It, it, it's, it's, it's a testament to how well run their organization is. But the fact of the matter is they don't have fans that come out to the ballpark. They play in a, in a glorified warehouse. They need a new stadium. Players like Randy Arosarena get you a new stadium. You have the top prospect in all baseball, Wander, Wander Franco, who's going to be on your team. Now, from what we heard last week from Arrestus, He's already looking for a 12-year, $300 million contract. Which, come on, man, get get play some baseball first. All right, don't just just go play baseball. All right, the, the money will come when you show it on the field. Get to the major leagues first, and then show it, and then talk about talk about all your money. Okay, but when you, you're going to have Wander Franco and Brandon Lau and Austin Meadows and Randy Arosarena in the same lineup, get these guys locked up. That is a huge core. For your team, you're going to have the pitching. You have Morton, you have Glass now, you have Snell, you have Yarborough. You, and then you have a ton of young pitching waiting in the wings in the, in the farm system. 
you got to lock some players up. You got to continue the success. You got to get to a World Series and win a World Series, and you got to get a new stadium. And Randy Rosarena is, I, I think he's the first domino in that. You get him signed, and I think all the pieces fall into place. Yeah, I saw quite a few um, comparisons to Mookie Betts, especially being you know in that World Series they were playing against each other. But a lot of people were saying Arena looks just like Mookie Betts. They have the same skill set. They're you know they're both hitting the ball really well at this point in time. I'm not sure how well Arena will come out in 2021, hit the ball. You know maybe just coming off this World Series high and this postseason high of being so incredible, maybe he struggles a little bit to start the year. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I'll put it like that. But I agree with you. I, I think they should give him six years, maybe seven-year extension. Get him locked up. And the Tampa Bay Rays are a team that doesn't spend money. They play the money ball approach for, for the most part. And I, I think now you're looking at a time where, okay, here's your farm system. Here's what they can give to you. Here's what they can produce. But you're also going to have to start spending the money to keep these guys because your farm system's not going to keep producing generational superstars over and over and over. So once these guys come to the majors out of your farm system, lock them up, do your best to get them back, and then you're going to be fine. You're going to be you're going to have a great core and you're going to keep going back to the postseason and probably the World Series multiple multiple more times. Wander Franco, I, I do agree. I, I think they should give him a little time in the majors before they lock him up. But you look at the White Sox and they've done similar things with extensions where they gave Eloy Jimenez a giant extension before he even played a single inning in baseball. Luis Robert, Luis Robert too. did too. So you know the both of those guys uh, and they locked up Tim Anderson before he really ever proved anything. Yeah, Anderson played his rookie year and they locked him up immediately. And, and I think that's fine in some cases, but right now you're going to have to spend money and you're going to have to keep these guys around. That, that's my opinion, at least. Well, well and the thing about a, a Rose, uh, not a Rose Arena, the thing about Wander Franco is when you're talking about Evan Longoria and the, and the, the deal that he got with the, with the Rays, you talk about um, those players that we just mentioned, Luis Robert, uh, Tim Anderson, Eloy Jimenez, they didn't sign 12 years, $300 million. They signed like six years, twenty-four million. Yeah, one you of know? them was like sixty at max. Yeah, si- six years, sixty million. Stuff, stuff like that. Uh, Tim Anderson's, I'm pretty sure, was something like six years, twenty-four million, it, it, or four years, twenty-four. Million. It was, it wasn't a high number, but it was high considering that he wasn't even going to make close to that until his fourth year in the league. Um, Wander Franco's asking for the world before he's ever proven anything, and that's that's the issue I take with that. Either way. The Rays need to lock up some of these young superstars so they can get that stadium because, believe it or not, there's talk about retraction with them. And, and, and Nashville wants a team. Vegas wants a team. Montreal wants a team. And people are scared about the Orioles. we got Camden Yards in our backyard. Orioles aren't going anywhere. They need to worry about teams like Tampa Bay or Florida that can't get fans in there. Florida got a new the, – the, the Miami Marlins got a new stadium and still can't get fans out to the ballpark. Those are the teams, despite success, that need to worry about retraction. We'll get to that later on. Uh, right now, I just want to remind you that if you're missing your Stay in the Fan Fix, you can get it twice a week on Facebook Live at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. Every Monday night, Stan and former Orioles pitcher Ross Grimsley talk baseball, and every Wednesday night, Stan and Gary Stein talk to a newsmaker in the sports world. This week, Stan and Ross caught up with former Oriole Dave Johnson while Stan and Gary chatted with Towson basketball coach Pat Scary. Uh, you can find both shows via the videos tab at facebook.com slash pressboxsports or pressboxonline.com. Stan took the week off this week. He doesn't have any shows this week. So stay tuned for 
the week the week after November eighth. Sam will be back on Monday and Wednesday doing both of his shows. Uh, until then, I just want to remind you we're coming to you from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio, and the Bat Around is brought to you by Chesapeake Employers Insurance, your workers' compensation insurance specialist. We got to get a break. When we get back, we're going to talk to Tim Everett, play-by-play man for the Los Angeles Dodgers. This is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? <sighs> Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son... We're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was, and his daddy before him, like you and me, and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. (laughs) Royal Farms subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast, Royal Farms. If it's happening in Baltimore sports and beyond, it's happening on Glenn Clark Radio. New Ravens linebacker Patrick Queen. Appreciate y'all. Trey Mancini. Thanks for having me on, guys. Glad to be back on. Ravens linebacker Matt Judon. Appreciate y'all. How y'all doing? Ravens kicker Justin Tucker. Thanks for having me. Adley Rutschman. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Coach Mark Turgeon. How you guys doing? Heston Kerstad. Thanks for having me. Joe Burrow. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Marlon Humphrey. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Coach Mike Loxley. Thanks for having me on. He is J.K. Dobbins. Thank Thank you for having me. I had a great time. The great Ray Lewis. Always good to be on. Dickie V, Dick Vitale. Lennon and Kyle, two diaper dandy. What's up, fellas? Hey, what's going on, Ed? Glenn and Kyle are live Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to noon, and archived anytime. Watch Facebook.com slash Pressbox Sports and listen to PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. For more than 40 years, K&S Automotive has been repairing, restoring, and maintaining foreign and domestic vehicles with a focus on exceptional workmanship and customer service. Everything from oil changes to major body work. Call K&S now at 410-235-6600 or go to knsimports.com. That's K&S at knsimports.com. Glory Days Grill's Oktoberfest menu is available now. Our fall seasonal menu is available for dine-in, dine-out, on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new chicken schnitzel or the delicious Prussian pretzel rolls. Glory Days is open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. All right, welcome back to the Bat Around with your host, Paul Valley. Joining me as always, my co-host, Zach Goodman. Dodgers just won their first World Series championship since 1988. It's been 32 years since they won their last one before this one. We in Baltimore know about 30-plus year World Championship drought. We have on the line right now uh, Dodgers radio and TV, t- TV play-by-play man Tim Neverett. Tim, how are you today, man? Great, Paul. Great, Zach. How are you guys? We're great. We're great. Thanks for thanks for coming on. No problem at all. It's uh, interesting times <laughs> for sure in baseball, and uh, you know, 
of course, you know, folks who follow the Dodgers are pretty excited about what's happening, too. Oh, absolutely. And speaking of which, have you had a chance to catch your breath yet after that World Series victory? Yeah, it's just been, you know, it's been neat. It, it's uh, it's interesting because I, I sort of knew what to expect because I was with the Red Sox in 2018 and experienced it that way, too. Not that it gets old. It doesn't. It's still great, but it's just uh, I, I had a better feeling of what to expect this time around. And, um, you know, everybody in the organization is thrilled that they've worked so hard to do this and, and fell short. You know, through the last three years, so when they were in the World Series, they thought that they had a chance to get to the series last year and fell in Game 5 in the Nationals. Um, just, uh, you know, things didn't go their way. But this year, everything seemed to. Uh, and just watching them this year, watching them play, just from spring training, the real spring training back in March, you sort of had a feeling that this was a team that could go on to the World Series and do some damage. Well, certainly this is a team that's won now eight straight division titles. They've played in three of the last four World Series. They won 106 games last year and didn't make it out of the divisional round. With that in mind, what does this championship mean for the city, the team, and the fan base out there in L.A.? That's huge because the Dodgers are so heavily followed in that area of the country and, and a lot of other areas in the world, really. I mean, it's it's a very popular team, and the fact that the the city got to enjoy uh, an NBA championship, albeit from the bubble and uh, at a much different time of the year than they're used to, at least this time they got to celebrate an October championship. There'll be no parade, at least for the time being. I know the team had sent out notice to the press uh, in recent days that they're going to postpone any kind of championship celebration. You know, yesterday the the Dodgers had a Zoom meeting with hundreds of employees around the world, and I was on that call, and uh, it was kind of a, a celebration in a way. You know, Oral Hershiser was on the call wearing the same sweater he wore at the parade in 1988 when he <laughs> celebrated uh, the last World Championship. He broke it out of mothballs and put it on nice. uh, in honor of the World Series. So, uh, just a you know, it, it's a good time. Considering everything that's going on in the world, it's a very pleasant distraction. And, uh, you know, now we, we kind of get back to off-season baseball business and look forward to spring training, and hopefully we can have somewhat more of a normal season next year. That we don't know yet, but we're hoping. Well, speaking of moving on to next season, this off-season, getting back to some normalcy, hopefully next year, Tim, this team as it currently stands, is poised to potentially repeat next year. You have Betts and Bellinger, uh, Muncie, uh, Jock Peterson, then your rotation. I mean, David Price is going to be arguably maybe their fifth starter next year. With that in mind, is there is there any move that this team needs to make in the offseason? Because they're loaded for a couple more years. Well, they've got some free agents right now that are pretty key guys, Justin Turner being one of them. Jock Peterson, you mentioned another Kike Hernandez, who's you know a super utility guy and a really really good defensive player, and uh, you know those guys are, are free agents. They've got some guys in the bullpen too, like Blake Trinan, uh, Pedro Baez. You know th- these guys are facing free agency, and with baseball's uncertain economic winter, we're already starting to see some pretty big names be either non-tendered or not have their options picked up because baseball needs to get. Uh, realigned economically after this past devastating year in terms of finances. 
Uh, I think the only team that's not going to be in that situation will be the Mets because of their new ownership. They got the richest owner in baseball now as yep. of Monday, and he's already rescinded pay cuts for for employees. And I mean, I can tell you that employees all around baseball had to take pay cuts this year, um, and uh, he's already reversed that. So it doesn't appear as though they're going to be in a financial uh, straight like everybody else will be. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, there's still a lot of moves they can make. There's going to be a lot of free agents out there uh, in the near future that might be worth taking a look and adding on. And, and with the free agent market this year, you're probably going to be able to add on at a bargain basement price, relatively speaking. So baseball is going to be really, really interesting this offseason in terms of player movement. But the Dodgers can still... Still improve, I think, in the starting pitching area. Um, you don't know what you're going to get from David Price, to be honest, when he comes back because he's 35 years old and he missed this season. So he's just a, another year older. Granted, his arm's rested, and hopefully he can pitch well. Uh, but I think they need to come up with a couple of other horses that can go you know, six, seven innings and, and count on those guys and, and start counting on the bullpen less. Yeah, Tim, if if the Dodgers do end up losing Justin Turner and they don't re-sign him, I think Gavin Lux is going to be a big part of the 2021 team, obviously a top prospect who hit very well throughout the minor leagues. What do you expect to see from Gavin Lux in 2021? Because we didn't see too much of him this year. He played in only one postseason game. So where do you think Lux stands as far as the Dodgers go? Well, you know, that's up to Gavin Lux. He's got to put all the work in and... He's really found out the difference between AAA and the major leagues. Now, last year when he came up, he had his moments of success. Um, you know, this year it didn't go that well for him. Uh, and I think that, you know, the fact that he was at the alternate site most of the season, uh, you know, was because he got a late start, number one. Uh, we're not sure whether or not he had COVID-19, um, but he did show up to camp late. And uh, he's probably one of the few people that didn't talk about why. So, wow. uh, you know, I think he kind of is glad this one's over. He can, you know, erase the chalkboard here and start fresh. Uh, I know he stays in Wisconsin and he works out indoors all winter. Uh, so I would expect him to do that. I wouldn't doubt if he actually came to L.A. and worked with the hitting guys for a while because, he, you know, he's a guy who probably can use that to, to, to you know, hit outside at Dodger Stadium, working with the hitting guys. He didn't do that last year. So um, I think that might be something that could help him. And if they do not bring back Kike Hernandez, I think that opens up some more playing time for Gavin Lux. But he's still in, uh, he's still in development. He's no finished product by any means. Certainly. Now, you just mentioned that, that, that the uh, Dodgers need to find themselves a horse for the rotation for next year. Uh, and then... Uh, takes me back to what happened in Game 6, where Blake Snell was taken out while he was absolutely dominating that Dodgers lineup. Uh, five and a third innings, nine strikeouts, just two hits on 73 pitches. What was the feeling, uh, if you know, in that Dodgers dugout? And can you imagine Dave Roberts pulling Kershaw if he was cruising like that? I, I still cannot believe that they pulled Snell out of that game. What was the Dodgers' reaction to that? Uh, they were... Um... They were elated, to say the least, because they couldn't hit him. I mean, you know, Mookie Betts was on deck, and he's, he turned around and looked at his teammates and said, are you kidding me? Yeah. He said, this is great. And then he went out and hit a double. And, you know, I mean, literally six pitches after Snell left the game, the Dodgers had the lead. They wouldn't relinquish. And 
all season long, Blake Snell had not gone more than six innings. That was the formula. That's what the, the Wall Street analysts' uh, analytical team came up with. And they literally, our guys from Wall Street who worked for the Rays, uh, and they came up with these formulas that need to work and need to be followed. And you can't really argue too much with them because they got them within two wins of a World Series title. However, baseball still is a sport played by human beings, managed by human beings. It's uh, a sport that is heavily relied upon the eye test. I'm not against analytics. I'm not against the science of the game. I'm not against the math of the game. However, there are times, like in an elimination game, when your ace is dominating, that you don't take him out. That you I let agree. him go around the order for the third time. I mean, he just absolutely carved up Mookie Betts the first time, two, first two times he faced him. You have a lead in the game. Why wouldn't you let him try it again? This is something that will go down and raise history as an epic failure. Um, because, you know, Cash followed the rules. He followed the plan that's laid out for him. He followed the plan that he was supposed to follow. And it did not work. You know, why would you take him out and put in a guy like Nick Anderson who'd been giving up runs in six straight outings? Mm-hmm. And, and again, it only took him six pitches before Mookie Betts was uh, was all the way around the bases for the go-ahead and ultimate winning run. Um, I, I, don't, uh, I don't understand it. I know that the Dodgers were looking at each other in the dugout saying, are you serious? He's really coming to get him? And uh, he did. He took him out. And if Blake Snell wanted to tear into cash publicly in the press conference afterward, he would have been justified in doing so, but he didn't do it. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it's just the way that the Rays do business, and it actually cost them the ultimate prize. Well, it, it certainly cost them the ultimate prize. I, I, I went off on a tangent in our opening segment today because uh, I, I believe you leave starting pitchers in until they give you a reason to take them out. And Snell certainly did not give Kevin Cash a reason to take him out of that game. Mookie Betts clearly the catalyst of that inning that put the Dodgers ahead for good and helped them win that championship. Um, the team's been good for a long time now, Tim, they, they, but they traded for Mookie in the offseason, finally got over that hump, ended that 32-year championship drought, kind of like Frank Robinson in 1966, putting the Orioles over the hump, winning the Triple Crown, and then helping them uh, win a World Series. Like I said, this team was very good. They've been in three World Series the last four years, but... Was Mookie the reason that they finally got it done? I can't point to any other reason because it was primarily the same group of guys who lost in Game 5 to the Nationals last year in the Division Series. Uh, Mookie was definitely the difference uh, from day one. Uh, When he came to camp, he talked to Dave Roberts and said, hey, you know, I'd really like to address the team. And he said, okay. And he said, I'd like Clayton Kershaw's number so I can call him and make sure it's all right. (laughs) So... He called Kershaw. Kershaw said, yeah, have at it. And so the first day they they had the first full team workout, Mookie called everybody over on the field, and he said, look, we want to win a World Series. Here's what we did in 18 in Boston. Here's what needs to happen here. He goes, this is what I noticed you guys doing when we played you in 2018, and this is the stuff that has to stop. And, you know, for a new guy, granted he has some pedigree, but for a new guy to come in and do that, the guys listened to him from day one, and it worked. And, uh, you know, one of the things that Mookie said at his initial press conference was that um, I, I want to win rings, plural, and bring rings back to Los Angeles. Well, he's got the first one, and he's got another dozen years to try to get more. Yeah. And, and I think he will. 
uh, and I think that the fans have fallen in love with him in a very short period of time, and he's given them every reason to. Because when do you see a player in his prime get traded like that? You don't. Uh, folks in Boston are just beside themselves, but I, I think when they decided to not sign him and take him to arbitration, I think probably that's when Mookie started thinking, maybe I'm better off elsewhere. And he, he hit the jackpot. And when they re-signed him in July to, to the um, long-term deal, uh, you know he didn't want to go anywhere else, and now he won't. He'll finish his career as a Dodger. Yeah, and you talked about Boston, and obviously you were the TV broadcaster for them for a little while, and they got uh, Jeter Downs and Alex Verdugo in that deal for Mookie Betts and David Price. Those two guys are really you know, solid. Well, one of them is a prospect, and the other one is already a major league player in Alex Verdugo. But what do you think Jeter Downs and Alex Verdugo would have brought to the Dodgers if that trade had not been made? Do you think they would have had the same impact uh, you know, combined as Mookie Betts would have had for the, for the Dodgers this year? No, and I saw Alex play in a full season with the Dodgers. Um, can you imagine a shortstop named Jeter in Boston? By the oh, way, oh man, uh, no, I mean, right? But but anyway, and, and Jeter Downs would not have been a factor this year at all. Uh, he would have been a minor league player. We might have seen him at the alternate site, perhaps, maybe. But I I don't think he would have been an impact player at all. Uh, I do think that Verdugo would have had his moments. Um, he's a nice player. He's a good kid. I like Alex. Uh, but he's not Mookie Betts, and never will be. Um, but that's not his fault. <laughs> he's going he's gonna to go to Boston, he's going to play hard, he's going to have some great games, and he's going to help them try to win. And, uh, you know, he'll be there for a while, and that's great. And, and you know, I, I just don't think they got the return from what they sent out. And to be honest, I do think the biggest thing that Boston got in return was being let out of half the money they owed to David Price. Yeah, that's a big that one. That was huge for them. That was worth more than anything they got back uh, because of economics. And uh, uh, they were trying. They they were hoping that they could get out from under that huge contract. They got out from half of it, which was a, a I think a, a big win and something that nobody ever talks about. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Mookie and the Dodgers certainly threw a wrench in the spokes of the Red Sox because it is very apparent that their plan was to let him go to the Dodgers and then try to re-sign him this offseason. He signs a 12-year extension, and, I mean, Dave Dombrowski was beside himself when that happened. Uh, certainly, we in Baltimore <clears throat> are very happy to see Mookie not play in the AL East probably for the rest of his career, so we don't, we don't have any issues with that. Now, somebody else for the Dodgers who could be getting an extension in the coming years is Cody Bellinger, 2017 NL Rookie of the Year, 2019 NL MVP, still just 25 years old, had a couple big home runs in that NL NLCS and the first game of the World Series. Are they discussing an extension with Belly? Because he's got to be the next guy, right? I think uh, I think Corey Seager might be the next guy. Um, That's true. He's a free agent. I think soon. I think he's the guy first because. I think uh, he's what a year or two older than a year. No, I might be a year older than Bellinger, but um, yeah. I mean, obviously they want to keep them. These are homegrown players. Uh, these are guys who love it where they are. They love the system. They love the organization. They love the city. They love the you know the spring training situation. They they're, they feel they're in a really good you know situation. And now, if they have to start looking at playing for other teams, they're not going to have it as good. 
and they know that, and they want to win, and winning means a lot. So they're in a winning organization. Um, so I, I think, yeah, certainly there'll be some conversation. Uh, I don't think Bellinger wants to have that conversation right now because his numbers were down this season. I think he wants True. to have another full season and see what happens. And the same with Seager. Seager, the difference with him is he played healthy. You know, he'd been coming off of injuries and surgeries and things like that last year, uh, missed some time. This year he was fully healthy and did what he can do, and it showed. I mean, he played at an MVP level, especially in the postseason. Absolutely. So th- those two guys are, are two you know, big cogs in the wheel for the, for the Dodgers. And, and, yeah, I certainly know that the Orioles fans were jumping for joy when Mookie Betts got traded out of the division <laughs> because yes. he had, uh, he's had two three home run games against the Orioles, and he always killed it at Camden Yards. I mean, he, he just he loved hitting in that ballpark. Um, so I know the Orioles fans are not disappointed to see Mookie playing in another league in another division as far away from Baltimore as possible. Oh, I hold Mookie Betts solely responsible for the Orioles not having that home wild card game in 2016. He absolutely <laughs> torched the Orioles. Well, I think he had, he had the, nine home he had runs three, against them. Yeah, he had the three home run game there. Uh, I don't want to say two of them were right down the line, and there was another one to left center. And uh, yeah, he, he was he was amazing against the Orioles. Um, you know, Jackie Bradley Jr. had some good games too against the O's, but I think that uh, you know Mookie was the Oriole killer for sure. Uh, I'll tell you what, Tim. If you ever have time, if you want to go look at some big time uh, numbers against the Orioles, just look at any t- any team's best player. And they have their career. Their their career best numbers are almost always against the Orioles. It's kind of ridiculous. Glaber uh, Torres, Glaber Torres, um, Nick Swisher, uh, Aaron Judge, Mookie Betts, Jackie Bradley Jr. They all absolutely torch the Orioles. It's it's maddening. So I'm glad to see one of them get out of town. You, you know what I mean? Now, <laughs> yeah, you still have to worry about Judge. Yeah, I know, but he he doesn't see the field much these days. He spends just about as much time on off the field as he does on it with these injuries. So, um, moving on a little bit here, I feel like because of his lack of po- because of his postseason failures and his back issues combined with the successes of guys like Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander, people kind of forgot that Clayton Kershaw is arguably the best pitcher in the game. What yeah. <laughs> what does this what does this championship this World Series do for his career? It flips his legacy. I mean, he had the legacy of being a great regular season pitcher, a Hall of Fame resume. Just if he never pitched in a postseason game, he's he's got a Hall of Fame resume for the regular season. One hundred percent. But now he's got a winning record in the postseason. He had a two and zero World Series. He was actually dominant in Game One. He had uh, another. Uh, playoff game, I want to say against the Padres, where he was, I think it was the Padres, anyway, one of the early playoff games, he was completely unhittable, mm-hmm. uh, and, and he's had games, I mean, when he's on, he's really on, and, uh, I, I did know from being on the other side of things for a while, uh, that the way that teams would attack him was they say, if you can get him in the first inning, and don't let him settle in, you might have a chance to get enough runs to get ahead. And so that's why you see, I think, a lot of his home runs that he gives up are in the first inning uh, because teams really try to ambush him. And sometimes it takes him just a little bit to, to zero in the scope and, and get his pitches where he wants them. But once he makes the adjustment on the slider, uh, his big curveball, if he can locate that high and if he can locate it outside or inside and low, he has a whole repertoire. When he gets into that mood, that, that mode rather, and gets into a groove, He's really, really hard to hit, and uh, I've been lucky enough to see him pitch a lot, and 
I, I do think that his legacy's flipped now, and I do think that that postseason uh, label is going to be ripped ripped away. And uh, I'm happy for him. And you know, he's been at this a long time, and now he's got this accolade as a world champion on his resume too. So, and he had a big part in getting the Dodgers there this year, in spite of the fact that a, a bad back cost him an opening day start. A bad back cost him an, uh, a start in the uh, National League Championship Series game one, but it worked out because he pitched game four and then started game one of the World Series. So, I mean, the timing actually worked perfectly for him by skipping that start and getting healthy. But, you know, everybody around the organization is very happy for Clayton because he's worked so hard his whole career and done so many great things. But when you look at his resume, you look at his numbers, you know, he's first ballot kind of stuff. Oh, he's absolutely first ballot. I love Clayton Kershaw, four four wins this postseason, a sub two five ERA, a banner postseason, and a banner year for the Dodgers this year. Couldn't be happier for the guy. Now you mentioned being on the other side of things there, Tim. Following your career a bit, you were with the Pittsburgh Pirates, and then they made the postseason for the first time in twenty one years. You were with the Red Sox, and they won the World Series in twenty eighteen. Then you go to the Dodgers; they win the World Series in twenty nineteen. You a bit of a front runner, or just a good luck charm for these teams? Uh, well, you're not the first to notice this. <laughs> People have asked me a lot about this. Uh, it's been written about, too. Um, it's just weird because uh, when I got to Pittsburgh, they were horrible. Oh, yeah. And uh, my second year there, the only thing that kept us from losing 100 games was a rainout in Chicago. Um, <laughs> but then after I was told when I got there, you're getting here at a good time. Things are going to turn around in a couple of seasons, and then they did. In 2011, they were in first place, had a collapse in August. 2012, in first place, had another collapse in August. And then uh, 2013, put it all together and um, went to the division series. Probably could have gone to the championship series if it wasn't for an epic pitching matchup in game four between Charlie Morton and Michael Waka that uh, was almost a draw but ended up going in the Cardinals' favor. Uh, you know, but then they won three years in a row. They they went to the postseason three straight years. Uh, the, the Red Sox, when I got there in 2015, were in last place. Mm-hmm. When I got there in 2016, they won the division. Then won it again in 17. Then won it again in 18 and won the World Series. And then I left. They didn't make the playoffs. Uh, the Dodgers have won eight straight, so they were winning before I got there, but they couldn't win the World Series until I did. So <laughs> I'm not saying I had anything to do with it, but my timing has been... Uh, my timing has been good. Let's just say that. Oh, I, I'd say it's been more than good. It's been pretty, pretty darn epic. Uh, you know, the Orioles—they have a World Series drought of about thirty-eight years now. How do we pry you away from the Dodgers so we can get some postseason success here in Baltimore? <laughs> well, you have to call—you uh, have to call them and tell them. <laughs> I'm, I'm putting some calls in as soon as we get you off the line, Tim, because I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm thirty-six years old. I've never seen a World Series championship in Baltimore. I need it. So I'm going to do what I can to get you over here in Baltimore. I like Baltimore, too. I've been there a lot. It's, it's a great town, good people there, and uh, love the ballpark. I think it's a little friendly in left center field. Yeah. Uh, that's why those right-handed hitters kill it there. But, um, you know, I would, I, to be honest with you, I do think that baseball is better when the Orioles are better. And, I agree. And, and I think that it's a, it's a market that has been such an important market for baseball for a lot of years it's just been so down and you know trying to rebuild and then rebuild again and rebuild again and uh you know not blaming chris davis but i mean he's he's been a drain on their their wallet 
Um, yep. You know, Manny Machado, uh, really good player, but just wasn't going to be able to stay there. They were not. They were not going to be able to afford him. So they got what they could out of him. Um, you know, I. I mean, I was there the night that they moved Adam Jones over to right field and put uh, was it Cedric Mullins, I think, in center. He made mm-hmm. his debut, you know, thinking this is the future. I mean, Jones wasn't too happy about it, but he understood and did it. And uh, I remember that was a big story a couple of years back when that happened. I remember being there that day. Um, but I, I, I do think that they've got some pretty good young players, but they do need to pick up some more veteran I think some more veteran players that are going to help them win, and I do think that you know baseball, especially in the American League East, is much better when Baltimore is better because it's a it's a better division with the Yankees and Red Sox and and now the Rays. Um, I, I don't think they need to do exactly what the Rays are doing in order to win. I still think they can do some more of what Buck Showalter had done when Buck was winning there most recently, and that's rip it and rip it. You know they. Can, I remember talking to uh, Steve Pierce. Remember you had Steve Pierce there? I love Steve Pierce. Yeah, he was so, a World Series MVP in 2018. Yeah, he was. So, But I was with him with the Pirates when he first came up. and So I know Steve very well. And, and when he was with the Orioles, I went over there to the clubhouse to see him, and I said, how do you like it here? And he goes, this is the best. I said, why? He goes, we don't have to have meetings every five minutes. <laughs> he goes, "We our hitters' meetings are basically, this is what he throws, go out there, see it, and hit it. And that's what they did. And he said, we, we have the freedom to, you know, to basically grip it and rip it. And at that time, the Orioles were competitive. Mm-hmm. And I liked that aspect of it. I thought that was great. And with that ballpark, I don't think you need to have, you know, a, not to saying they're a small ball team by any stretch, but I think you need to have some sluggers in that ballpark. You need to have some guys who can really hit. Yeah. And... um you know, that's what they, if you sacrifice some defense for hitting, you sacrifice some pitching for hitting, I think you're going to win more games. But I do think they need some pitching there. Yeah. Um, but I'd love to see the Orioles get more competitive because, like I said, I think baseball is better when, when the Orioles are better. Well, yeah, well, they, they, they've already started with Ryan Mountcastle. Adley Rutschman's waiting in the wings. He's not going to be too far off. And the, the, the pitching is pretty rich in the lower levels of the minor leagues right now. So Orioles fans certainly have a lot to look forward to. Tim, we got to get a break, but thank you so much for joining our program. You were excellent. We really appreciate you coming on today. No problem. Thanks for asking me, and uh, have an interesting offseason. Uh, you do the same. Hopefully we'll get to talk to you next year. Yeah, no problem. Take it easy. That was Tim Neverett, play-by-play man on the radio and on television for the Los Angeles Dodgers, previously with the Red Sox, previously before that with the Pirates, trying to coax him to come to Baltimore so he can get some postseason success. It seems to follow him everywhere he goes here in Baltimore. Uh, Before we get our next break, I just want to remind you all that every Monday through Friday, Glenn Clark and Kyle Ottenheimer bring their pragmatic and irreverent approach to Baltimore sports via PressBox's Glenn Clark Radio. Watch the show at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and listen at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. You never know who might pop up on GCR. This week, the guys called up with Patrick Ricard, Brian Billick, Jim Nance, Adelius Thomas, and so many more ahead of the Ravens-Steelers rivalry matchup this Sunday. Find those interviews today in the Glenn Clark Radio Week in Review feature at PressBoxOnline.com. we got to get a break. When we come back, we're going to take you on the payoff pitch around the league, and then we're going to talk about an article that came up in the Sun yesterday regarding potential sale of the Baltimore Orioles. Stay tuned for that when we come back. 
Glory Days Grill's Oktoberfest menu is available now. Our fall seasonal menu is available for dine-in, dine-out, on the patio, or to-go. It's a new season, so enjoy new flavors. Try their new chicken schnitzel or the delicious Prussian pretzel rolls. Glory Days is open from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. every day. Visit glorydaysgrill.com for a location near you. From the Glory Days Grill family, stay healthy and positive during this challenging time in our community. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. If you can't be there for Baltimore football games this season, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them. With Pressbox's Project Game Day, I'm Glenn Clark, and I'm with you at halftime of every game. And then I'm joined post-game by a panel of experts, including Ken Zalis and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports and post-game also at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is just the ref's fault all season long that's press boxes project game day every game day this season brought to you by wise markets and the u.s army if you're looking to make an impact there's no better place to do that than the u.s army whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases develop technologies or seek adventures across the globe the army is where all of that can happen and so much more the army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world and to win ask yourself What's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. The biggest pro wrestling stars today and all time all have one thing in common. You've heard them on Jobbing Out. Brett the Hitman Hart. Good to be on the show. Adam Cole. How are you guys doing today? Matt Riddle. Yeah, man. Thanks, man. Broken Matt Hardy. Excellent. The bad guy, Scott Hall. Hey, yo. Keith Lee. Appreciate you guys having me, man. Bill Goldberg. My pleasure. Charlotte. Thank you so much for having me. Mick Foley is with us. This is the greatest name for a wrestling show I've ever heard. MJF. I'm glad you're happy I'm on this show because I'm freaking miserable. Le champion! Chris Jericho. Le champion. AJ, Aaron, Brandon, and Glenn are talking pro wrestling every week on Jobbing Out. Find it at pressboxonline.com slash radio, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Alright, welcome back to the Bat Around, coming at you live from the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio with Paul Valley and my co-host, Zach Goodman. And if you look over at Zach right now, you'll notice that he's modeling our 8-inch neck gaiter. Uh, since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be 
for the foreseeable future. We might as well wear masks to celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. Press Box is offering three different types of home team masks, including that orange and purple gator, Maryland flag pattern 20, oh, I'm sorry, that's a 20-inch neck gator, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gator honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks, not CDC approved, but they're perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your teams and being respectful to those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com slash masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com slash masks to get yours now. I actually wore mine at work last night, uh, being that it's Halloween weekend. Uh, They allowed us to dress up. I wasn't going to do it, and then somebody said, just come dress as a baseball player. You can wear a hat. So I went to work dressed as an Orioles player. I wore the, the, the neck gaiter, but I used the orange side this time. Got a lot of compliments on it. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good mask to have. Again, go to pressboxonline.com slash mask to get yours now. They're, they're nice. I like them. I like them. Moving on, we got to get to the payoff pitch around the league right now, and when I did this part of the of the actual payoff pitch podcast last year, guys, I, I, I got to tell you what's coming up in the offseason. It can be like watching paint dry, so I'm going to try and be as enthusiastic as I can about this, but we got to tell you about the important dates coming up uh, in the offseason. Uh, so after the completion of the World Series, uh, every eligible player for free agency enter free agency the morning of October 28th, but they have to wait five days. Uh, before they can sign with a new team. That five days is up tomorrow, November 1st. Uh, they can sign with new teams. This is also the date that teams have uh, until to decide whether or not to pick up options on players like Jose Iglesias with his $3.5 million with the Orioles. I'm I'm praying to the baseball guys that the Orioles pick that up because I, 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 we need him. We need not we, they, the Orioles need him. Uh, but And this is also when qualifying offers must be made to a team's own free agents. Um... Orioles don't have any guys that they're going to offer, a, make a qualifying offer to, um, but other teams potentially could. If you remember, Matt Wieters actually accepted the qualifying offer back after the uh, 2016 season, I believe it was. Uh, for 2017, he accepted the qualifying offer, so um, that's the date, November 1st, to extend those. November 2nd, the awards finalists are announced for MVP, Cy Young, Managers of the Year, and Rookies of the Year. November 3rd, Gold Glove Award winners are announced Anthony Santander is uh, up for the award. He's the finalist for right field, although I don't think he's going to win that. I think it's Joey Gallo's to lose. Then November 9th through the 12th in order, they announced the rookies of the year, the, ma- the managers of the year, the Cy Youngs, and the MVPs in order by date. Uh, November 20th, any player a team wishes to protect from the Rule 5 draft must be added to the 40-man roster. Expo- it will be exposed to the draft at the winter meetings. Uh, general manager meetings are usually held in November, and they serve as like the preliminary talks for a lot of the deals made at the winter meetings, which usually start the first Sunday or Monday of December. Both the winter meetings and the general manager meetings have been postponed, uh, but they're expected to be held virtually. December 2nd is a non-tender deadline at 7 p.m. That's a date by which arbitration-eligible players on major league ra- rosters must be tender contracts or immediately become free agents. Orioles are in a wait. We're in a wait and see approach with the Orioles. Are they going to extend contracts to to Renato Nunez, to Hanser Alberto, or are they going to let those the guys go because they're due hefty pay raises? And 
they're kind of one-dimensional guys at this point in their careers. Again, we mentioned the winter meetings. That's supposed to be December 6th to the 12th. Um, and then the virtual, then the Rule 5 draft would be the last day of the winter meetings. Uh, they may still be the dates for the winter meetings, but it's going to be held virtually. Uh, then noon, January 15th is the deadline for arbitration elig- eligible players to accept contract offers from their given teams. If they don't, they go to arbitration where a panel of arbitrators hears both sides' arguments and decides on the contract. That usually happens in February. You hear all the time about Orioles players that go to arbitration, uh, leaving spring training to go to this. Uh, Orioles are pretty pretty damn good in arbitration. They don't lose. Um, so players uh, don't want to do that. Uh, and then February 10th to 13th, that's those dates. All teams, pitchers, and catchers report on one of those dates between February 10th and the 13th, uh, followed by position players on February 15th to the 17th. First exhibition games are played February 27th. Guys, I hope I didn't bore you too much with that. Just dates that we have to tell you about. You know what I mean? But let's move on uh, to some Orioles banter here, Zach. And we want to talk about, you sent me a link for this article yesterday. And I read it and kind of seems much ado about nothing. It's an article by Jeff Barker in the Baltimore Sun stating that interest has been shown in buying the Baltimore Orioles from multiple potential ownership groups. I believe three ownership groups. And Major League Baseball contacted Cal Ripken regarding his interest in being a part of any ownership group. You look at like Magic Johnson being a, a co-owner, a part owner of the Dodgers. They want Ripken's name with the franchise. It's no secret that Major League Baseball wants a different owner in Baltimore. They, they are tired of Peter Angelos. Going back to um, the 94 work stoppage, uh, he did not want to use replacement players. And I get it because he didn't want Ripken to, Ripken's streak to be broken because of a labor strike and because of replacement players. So I get that. Uh, he also was the only pro- vo- owner that voted against Montreal going to D.C. And that's where the whole Masson issue came from, the Masson dispute that we're dealing with now because he got, they gave him the world with Masson in, in that. Um, basically, the article states that the, there's anonymity in the potential buyers because of the 91-year-old Peter Angelos' declining health. He's been in declining health um, for a few years now uh, from what I've heard. You know, I'm not going to say what I heard because I don't know if it's true or not, and I don't want to put it out there for the world. But I, I've been hearing for a few years now that he's been in declining health. It states that if it, The article states that if a team is sold while Peter is still alive, uh, the Angelos family will be subjected to steep capital gains taxes since the club is worth so much more now than it was when he purchased them. He bought them for $173 million in 1993. They're worth $1.4 billion now. So huge taxes. However, if they sell the club after he dies, the club will be assessed at the current fair market value, which would save the family hundreds of millions of dollars. Zach, you were worried about this. Tell me why you were worried. Well, I think any time you hear about a team being sold, no matter what sport it is, you always have to wonder about the new owner possibly moving the team. And we've talked about this, you know, a lot over the last few years about the Orioles. You know, we've heard rumors of Nashville and Portland and all the places the Orioles could move to. I I don't think the Orioles will move. I've never thought the Orioles would move, but I do worry about what a new owner's plan would be. I have no doubt that Peter Angelos and his sons would keep the Orioles in Baltimore. They said last year... The Orioles will be in Baltimore as long as Fort McHenry is, so pretty much forever. You know, they're, they're yeah. not leaving. But a new owner, you never know what kind of plan they could have. There are a lot of cities, like you said, Vegas, too, that, that could want a baseball team. The Orioles would be so, so wrong to leave Camden Yards. They, they should never leave Camden Yards. It's the best ballpark in baseball. It's, it's a gem. 
and that's why I, I don't think the Orioles will ever move is because of the ballpark. But I, I think any time where there is a sale of a team, you just have to worry about what kind of plans the ownership will have. Now, my second thing on this is a new owner comes in in the middle of a rebuild. Say this happens next year, and the Orioles are still in a rebuild in which Mike Elias has you know total control of the team, and he's done everything he said he's going to do as far as his plan goes. And his plan is to rebuild this team and, and get them that, that talent pipeline and keep having a competitive team over and over and over after all of these prospects you know, get to the major leagues and produce. So I think you have that plan going on with Mike Elias, and that's supported by the ownership in Peter Angelos. A new owner could come in and say, look, we want to win right now. We're going to start just signing free agents and signing free agents. And it kind of screws up the plan that Mike Elias has executed pretty perfectly right now. So those are the two concerns I do have. Neither are you know that factual yet because we don't know what really would happen if a new ownership group came in, but that's the thing. We just don't know what will happen. Well, yeah, I, and I think that they would – interview these potential suitors um, and make sure that what this ownership group is going to do is in line with what the Orioles are already doing. I don't think they just sell it to somebody who says, I want to halt the rebuild and just throw all this money at all these players. It'd be cool. It would be cool to see them start to compete immediately. But I like what they're doing right now. I think we all see the plan coming to fruition here, uh, slowly but surely, in Baltimore. Now, I was talking with Glenn Clark. Uh, with Glenn Clark, uh, our director here, um, yesterday about this article. And this is what he had to say. And he, he told me that I could quote him on this. He said, There are absolutely plenty of folks who would like to buy the Orioles, and MLB would prefer the team have a different owner. But that's just sort of the end of it until something changes. No one really knows if John, Angelo's Peter's son, will ultimately want to own the team long term. But the only news in this story is that the league has said it would like Ripken to be part of a potential next group. It's a long-form way of saying there are questions about the future, which is basically what we've known all along. And uh, I asked him if I could quote him on this because there's no better way to articulate this. This story, like I said at the beginning of the segment, is much ado about nothing. Of course, there's somebody interested in buying the Baltimore Orioles. They're a major league team. Uh, of course there's interest. You know what I mean? Especially when you think about it being Cal Ripken as part of that ownership group. People are kind of freaking out because they don't want ownership to move this team to Nashville or to move this team to Vegas. And look, I get it, man. I totally get it. The The Colts left in the middle of the night uh, six months before I was born. The, the Colts left in the middle of of the night. Then you look at 1993, the, Ra- the the Baltimore was awarded an NFL expansion franchise and Paul Tagliabue came out of that meeting and stopped what everybody was saying and said brought them back in. They met for like 11 hours and they awarded the franchise to to Carolina instead. The Ravens had to had to wait 3 more years to come into actualization. Then you look at the Stallions. They come here. They play in two Grey Cups. They win one of them, and then they go off to Montreal. And maybe that was also because of the fact that we were getting the Baltimore was getting an NFL franchise. So I get it. We are on edge about this sort of thing. But all you have to do is look down Utah Street. That's all you have to do. As long as Camden Yards is standing in front of that warehouse, there will be Major League Baseball in Baltimore. Camden Yards is the ballpark that forever changed baseball. It is a gem of Major League Baseball. It will never, ever not be occupied. There will never be a moment 
where there's not a major league team playing at Camden Yards. You can quote me on this till the day I die. The Baltimore Orioles will always be the Baltimore Orioles. Not to mention the fact that they're pretty damn close on a new lease with the Maryland Stadium Authority for Camden Yards. And even if they weren't close, the Orioles have an option for that takes them gives them another five years at Camden Yards. This team's not going anywhere, guys. Team's not going anywhere. We're going to see the fruits of this rebuild. We're going to see another championship team for the first time in over 40 years when it actually happens here in Baltimore. I, for one, can't wait to see it. It's going to happen, and we're going to get to see it in Baltimore. Have no fear. Speaking of Baltimore, we're going to get Joe Trezzo on the line. He's the Orioles beat writer for MLB.com. Sorry for all the pounding on the desk here. Zach's going to give us a little bit of a, a live read to plug our print edition of Press Box while I get Joe on the line. All right, the latest edition of Press Box is available now on the cover. We celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens' Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more, helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. Press Box is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. And you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. Thank you, Zach. Certainly a good, uh, a, a good read here. And Ravens looking to try and go to another Super Bowl, try to get their third one in franchise history. But this is a baseball show, and we're here to talk about baseball and primarily Orioles baseball. With that in mind, we have Joe Trezza, uh, Orioles beat writer for MLB.com on the line. Joe, how are you today? Hey, what's happening? Good morning. Good morning to you. Glad to have you on the program. Uh, why don't you tell us, Joe, a little bit about what this season was like for you, given that you couldn't travel with the team, you couldn't um, you, you couldn't have live press conferences, you had to do basically everything over Zoom, wearing face masks in the press box. What was this stranger than strange season like for you? Well, the thing that I always tell people is uh, that first and foremost, it was just um, more of a solitary experience um, that covering baseball has ever been in the past. And that's probably true of most people in their jobs, you know, staying home and for the most part and doing a lot of their work remotely. Um, but it was a lot more phone calls. You know, it was a lot less interacting with uh, the people that you cover in person. Um, it was a lot less being embedded with the team uh, than, than we're all kind of accustomed to being and prefer to be um and in you know one of the consequences of that was um that a lot of the coverage it, it was it was more difficult to differentiate your coverage it was more difficult to go visit a guy at his locker than maybe everybody else isn't talking to after the game or ask an extra question because you have you're afforded the uh, luxury of you know a private conversation with somebody or uh, the ability to check in with someone and, and get some context on something, maybe in an informal, off-the-record kind of way, those opportunities were more limited this year. Um, so it was more of an impersonal experience, I would say, um, especially when it comes to, to covering players um, because everyone is getting the same content, essentially, and it's on Zoom, and there's this uh, there's this buffer brought about by the technology where that, that it connects us in a way that we wouldn't have been connected uh, without it, but it also creates this kind of um, this buffer that makes things a little less in person, uh, more impersonal. So uh, I think we're all hoping things get back to normal next year, uh, for the most part. Um, but that's probably true of everybody in their jobs, right? 
Hey, Joe, it's Zach Goodman. Um, and, and you just talked about how covering the team, obviously very different this year. And I just want to know how it all worked as, as far as reporting goes because you really couldn't go in the warehouse, I'm assuming, much. You didn't really hear things from these team sources as much as you really would have heard in, in previous years. But how were you able to interact with team officials and, and hear things and official announcement by the Orioles and, and able to report them? How is that different in, in the 2020 season? Well, things were very streamlined from an official, you know, announcement point of view. Um, things were pretty regimented. Uh, the Orioles, I thought PR staff did a great job in, like, getting everybody on the same page um, and creating kind of a virtual workday, workflow-type experience for everybody where you knew certain things were going to happen at certain times. Um, and there was a – the solution of a daily routine was kind of – was created really well, I thought. Um, or at least as well as, as possible. Everybody faced the challenges this year of recreating that experience, and it wasn't perfect anywhere. But um, I thought the Orioles did a really good job in letting us know, you know when things were going to come down the pipe, um, when players were going to be available, who was going to be available, um, and to just make things as easy as possible. Um, but from a, you know, from a reporting standpoint, in terms of getting information that, from sources that maybe, um, you know, aren't, that are, information that's not coming from the team exactly or or information that the team wouldn't necessarily announce you know that was more difficult because you, you never really ran into it whereas when everyone's working in the same location every every day you know you run into people you can approach things casually you can meet people in a cafeteria you can do all these different uh, things that just organically kind of happen when you're physically around other people and this year, it seemed like whenever there was an exchange of information, it was either it, it was it was one side asking for it, you know, and that creates um, a professional, but you know, not always the most comfortable dynamic between people, where you're only you're only reaching out for them to ask for information, and and it went both ways, you know, it went from from reporter to source, and from source to reporter in a lot of ways, um, but there just wasn't those again those those, those personal interaction buffers. Um, that you naturally get just organically working around people. Yeah, I, I totally get what you mean there because it's when, like when I have to reach out to Orioles PR to get guests on the show, it, I feel like I'm only reaching out to you to get something that I want from you. So I totally get the awkwardness of that situation there for you. Now, Joe, moving on <coughs> from what it was like to cover the team, what were your thoughts on the team as a whole this season? I felt like the season was wildly successful. What did you see from the 2020 Baltimore Orioles? Well, I thought it was more. You know, I thought it was successful um, in the sense when you look at it against the backdrop of 2019. I thought um, there was there were long stretches of 2019 where uh, we were kind of waiting to see progress. And you know, by the end of the year, you saw some of it in terms of individual performances and young players coming up. But it was very much a sprinkle, you know, in a in a larger ocean of um, of progress not kind of being made for a long for a long time and uh, I thought we saw a lot more of that this year in a smaller sample so I think that's a positive um, I think you saw a lot of young players get more of an opportunity and I'm talking about young players that the organization has plans for um, get an opportunity and run with it for the most part you know you didn't really have a lot of examples of guys who came up who the club wants to see perform well and who did not? And I think that's a good barometer for um, a rebuilding a rebuilding team at this you know stage in the cycle, where it's what do the young players do when they get there, and how many of them stay? 
And I think you're going to see most of these guys hang around for quite a bit. You know, not not saying all of them are going to be all-stars or all of them are going to be Hall of Fame players or all of them are going to be with the team for 10 years, but, you know, you didn't really see many prospects come up and immediately fail consistently, which is not nothing. Um, and that's an important thing because if you start off with that baseline of success, that high floor, then that bodes well for any prospect going forward in the organization as a whole. So I think you saw a lot of that, um, you know, from guys like Anthony Santander really breaking out um, to the young pitchers like Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken really having solid debuts where they, they, you know, they weren't perfect and there were some hiccups along the way. But for the most part, you saw that those guys can not only compete at this level, but they can play here as well, and they, su- they can succeed there, which is something you didn't see much from guys who were yo-yoed back and forth in 2019. So I think that's the main takeaway. You know, the, um, I, I do think in some ways having a 60-game season actually helped the outlook um, in, in, in some way, whereas, you know, you saw how, how poorly the Orioles finished the season, right? Mm-hmm. And even though they finished the season poorly from a win-loss standpoint, they're still able to take away all of these positives on the development side. Whereas if it was a 162-game season and those long stretches of failure, they didn't last for three weeks, they lasted for three months. Suddenly the conversation is different at the end of the year, and I think a lot of the outlooks for these players are different, especially from an evaluation and a confidence standpoint. So I think in, you know, in some ways, yeah, did not having a minor league season hurt this organization? Absolutely. It hurt a lot of prospects in their development. But when it comes from the way things are viewed, both internally and externally, having a 60-game sample for a lot of these guys might actually bode well going forward than, say, having a 162-game season and some of these young players experiencing the natural uh, ebbs and flows of a season that long. Oh, absolutely, and I think it bodes well for a ball club to be in contention as late as the Orioles were. They were in contention up until the last five games of the year at the forefront of that. Uh, even though he, he you know was injured for a lot of the year, it was Jose Iglesias, uh, and that's a guy who his option for $3.5 million has to be picked up by tomorrow or he becomes a free agent. Do you have any news on that front regarding what the Orioles plan to do with Jose Iglesias by tomorrow? Um, all I know is that it sounds like um, the Orioles are going to wait until the last minute to make this decision, and that isn't necessarily um, unique in terms of their decision-making process. The Orioles don't really like, especially this new front office, they don't like to make decisions before they have to, mm-hmm. just from a process standpoint. Where And you notice this covering the team where you know teams have had five days now after the World Series to decline or accept a lot of these options, and a lot of teams have done so, you know, especially with guys that they know they're going to decline. You saw the Mets decline three options on Friday, I think it was. And Thursday and Friday, there was a flurry of moves um, across the league with teams picking up or, or not these options. And the Orioles just don't operate that way. If the deadline is Sunday, they're going to wait till Sunday because they don't know, especially in 2020, what's going to happen tomorrow. And I think that's pretty reflective of the way they, that they operate from a process standpoint. Um, but I also think that it speaks to the kind of murkiness of this particular decision to where, you know, maybe from a baseball standpoint, it's a slam dunk that Jose Iglesias' option gets picked up, especially given its production this year and the cost of it. But from a financial standpoint, um, 
you would think like if it was a slam dunk, it might have been done already, right? right. So, um, I you know I don't think that reading between the lines there is is premature, or I you know I I think that it's it's valid. Um, I think there's a really good chance that the Orioles decline Jose Iglesias' option, um, given the financial uncertainty that the coronavirus pandemic has brought about league wide. Given where they are in their rebuilding cycle given the fact that they were already operating with baseball's lowest payroll this year um, and have been slashing payroll for a while now, um, and given the fact that Jose Iglesias is a massive regression candidate. Um, you know, so the flip side of being the best all-around player on the team when nobody expected you to be is that most of the league probably isn't going to expect you to be that player next year over a larger sample. And that's just the reality of it. Um, so now, is there an argument for keeping Iglesias for leadership reasons, uh, for clubhouse reasons, for um, you know maybe maybe he becomes a, a trade asset uh, or, or, or a trade ship later next year? Absolutely. Um, but the also the Orioles also could look at it as you know this is too expensive for us right now, especially for a guy who, despite all his success with us, isn't part of our long term plan, and it might just be it might be too big of a risk to assume that he replicates his production from 2020 and 2021 and becomes that trade chip. So, look, I think it could go either way at this point, um, but I, I think that it's less of a slam dunk that, he, that the option does get pick, picked up than it might look like on paper. Well, if the option doesn't get picked up, if it is declined, who plays shortstop for the Baltimore Orioles in 2021? No, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I know the answer to that question right now. I don't know if the Orioles do. Um, but I, I kind of look at the Jonathan VR situation from a year ago where he was more productive than Jose Iglesias and more expensive, significantly so, right? But when VR was traded before the non-tender deadline last year, the question was, oh, who plays, you know, who fills his, his spot? Well, the, that forced the Orioles to go out and target Jose Iglesias in free agency and then move Hanser Alberto to second base. So, you know, there, is there a cheaper solution to Jose Iglesias at shortstop on the open market? Probably. There's a really high probability that there will be, especially given all the options being declined right now, all the potential non-tenders that are happening or that are, are projected to, be, to happen. You know, there, there are going to be a lot of free agents this year. It's going to be a buyer's market for sure. So, um, you know, it could be a host of different players. It could, there aren't that many internal options. I mean, Richie Martin probably is one. He probably also profiles as more of a utility piece at this point. Um, uh, a prospect like Taryn Vavra probably isn't ready yet. Um, and then you have a guy like Ryland Bannon who probably profiles better at second base or third. So um, I think it's a complex question. I think the answer doesn't reveal itself probably for a few months. Yeah, Joe, there was a rumor floating around, a rumor that wasn't confirmed by anyone, but a rumor floating around that, the Yankees could possibly be interested in Jose Iglesias if he re reaches free agency or the Orioles will be willing to trade him. So is there any chance the Orioles could pick up that option and then deal him a month or two later to the, some, some team like the even the Yankees? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a, big, well, that's a big incentive towards picking up the option, right? But the question becomes, you know, how much of a financial risk are you willing to take and how tight are the purse strings at the, you know, heading into this offseason? We don't really know the answer to that. A lot of that is speculation, but um, the moves that the Orioles make will be reflective of that overall theme. 
and they can they will dictate public opinion in that sphere as well. So, um, you know, I don't I, I imagine that the Yankees aren't the only contender who could find a useful role for a guy like Jose Iglesias, a veteran, versatile, you know, dependable. Uh, glove first player who's shown that as he's grown, he can hit a little bit too, and that he's made strides in his game. I think Jose Iglesias is a really important role player on a good team. You know, I think that's his ceiling right now, um, where I can definitely see several types of contenders being interested in him for that purpose. Maybe not in an everyday role, but maybe as a super utility guy who can provide some punch off the bench, who's been around a while, um, that is respected, um, that isn't a defensive liability. That's actually the opposite, and he, he can be a defensive asset late in games. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's value there. Um, I I don't know how much value there is in comparison. Like this is this is a weird off season, right? Like I think teams are still trying to figure out what the free agent market is going to look like with all, the, all these non tenders being rushed into it, and so it's going to be a while until they are able to gauge the trade market as well. Well, the Orioles went out and made a move the other day, and they picked up Yomer Sanchez off waivers from the White Sox. And that was the 2019 Gold Glove winner at second base, one of the best defensive second basemen in the game, if not the best in the game. Does that put the writing on the wall for Hanser Alberto? He's due a hefty raise in arbitration this year. Uh, there's been rumors that the Orioles could either um, decline to offer him a contract or sign him and trade him like they did with VR and with Bundy last year, if they pick up the Iglesias uh, option, and that seems like a big if right now based on what you just said, I can't imagine them keeping Hanser Alberto. I think they'd want a better defensive uh, grouping up the middle. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair to connect those dots. Um, I also don't think that, that any of these decisions are actually made yet, but I do think that the Orioles are giving themselves some insurance and some you know, some depth there for that purpose to where, like, hey, if, if this is the way we decide to go with this other decision, at least we're covered. Um, and it, with a guy like Yomer Sanchez, like, that might be an option that uh, provides more value in some other areas than uh, we might have thought for a little less of the price. And I think that's totally fair to connect those dots. I don't know if it ends up working that way because, as we've seen with, you know, a lot of these waiver claims over the years, especially the last few years with the Orioles, some of these guys get get outrighted off the 40-man roster weeks later to never return. Hans Roberto is a great uh, example of that. He was he was designated twice by the Orioles, four times in one winter, and then he ends up back in Baltimore and he becomes this you know useful player for them. But you know there was a time where he was a lot like Yomer Sanchez right now, where he gets claimed in the winter. It's early in the winter. You don't really know exactly what the rest of the winter has in store. Um, the Orioles have some other 40-man moves to make. They have to protect some prospects. You know, there could be a crunch pretty soon. All that stuff is really impossible to predict. But do I think it's fair to say that, you know, if they decide to make an, uh, what will probably be an unpopular decision on Hanser Alberto and arbitration, um, do, does Yomer Sanchez provide insurance and coverage and depth? I think that's very fair, and I think it's true. And he probably does increase the, the, the infield defense. I'm sorry, he probably does boost the infield defense. Um, he's probably less of an offensive player than Hanser Alberto is. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think that's fair. Now, if you were a betting man, Joe, and for all you, you may be, for all I know, um, the Orioles... One of, my few, one of the few vices I don't have. Uh, you and me both, thank God. Um, 
the Orioles do have to protect some prospects, uh, add them to the 40-man roster, or risk losing them in the Rule 5. If you had to put money on it today, who would those prospects be that they're going to protect? Yeah, I, um, that's a good question. I think there are... So I, I, I believe there are five top 30 prospects based on how we rank them um, at MLB Pipeline who are eligible for protection. Um, I think there are two or three unranked prospects who are also candidates to be protected. So I think the number that I come across is like six or seven like pretty fair candidates to be protected. I don't think all of them are going to be, um, but I do think you'll see some big names. I think you'll see Yusnel Diaz for sure. You'll see Michael Bauman for sure. You'll see Zach Lauder for sure. I think those are three locks. Mm-hmm. Then you have Alexander Wells, who is probably a fringe candidate at this point. Um, you know, a good prospect, a solid prospect, somebody the Orioles like, but he's never pitched above double-A. I'm not sure if a team takes a chance on him to stay in their rotation for a full season, especially given the type of pitcher he is, more of a junk ball or a control guy who's never pitched above double-A. You know, that, that doesn't sound necessarily like a, like a top rule five pick, so the Orioles might be able to get away with keeping Wells unprotected. Um, I think they protect Ryland Bannon because he's a guy who's expected to simply just to make an impact next year and, and to get some run at the big league level in 2021. Um, infielder, um, second base, third base, uh, good power from the right side. He's a guy that was part of the Manny Machado deal. Um, I think he gets protected. So I think for sure it's, it's Diaz, Bauman, Lauder, and Bannon. And then there are, there are some other candidates. I think a guy you don't hear a lot about at all is Zach Pop. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's on purpose because uh, he's been rehabbing Tommy John from, from Tommy John for over a year now. He's very close to being fully healthy and back again, but there hasn't really been a lot of pub on him because he's a guy who was deemed pretty close to big league ready a few years ago when he got hurt. Now he's healthy again. There's a chance teams would take a flyer on a, you know, an upside arm like that. Um, and it really just depends on how healthy he is, which the Orioles aren't really. Uh, it's information they aren't exactly volunteering over, and that's probably right. because they want to be able to not protect him and keep him at the same time. Um, and then there's a guy like Isaac Matson who came over in the, in, in the Dylan Bundy deal last year who's got really great strikeout numbers in the minor leagues. He's deemed as, you know, he's a guy, he's an older guy. Pitch in AAA a little bit, probably big league ready, probably would have debuted in 2020 had the season been longer. Um, and so those are the candidates there. I, I think one of those guys, Matson or Pop, probably sneaks in. I think there's a chance the Orioles protect five guys. So that was a, a long roundabout way of, a, of answering your question. I, I, would, <laughs> That's all right. I would put the number at five, which is, which is a pretty big number. It um, is. I believe last year that there, was, there were four, um, and that's, that's bigger than what most clubs do. But the Orioles are in a different position than most clubs. And, you know, they can't afford to lose, to lose players like maybe a contending team, you know, with the, with the, that doesn't rely on its farm system nearly as much. Uh, can um, Now, before we let you go, Joe, um, you mentioned Zach Pop. He's coming back from Tommy John surgery. We heard about Carter Ballmer. On uh, how he yeah. had the elbow injury and just had Tommy John surgery. That's really the only instructional league update that I could find. Do you have any information or any updates about what's going on down there and how pl- how players are performing? Yeah, I do. So 
Um, the Orioles Instructional League actually closed this week. It was a month-long camp. Uh, there were about 55 prospects down there um, of various levels and pedigrees. Um, for the most part, it was full of players who weren't a part of the 60-man player pool or the secondary site uh, this summer. Now, there are a few exceptions to that. Adley Rutschman was down there. D.L. Hall was down there. Grayson Rodriguez was down there. Um, Jordan Westberg was down there. Um, most of the 2020 draft class was down there, except for Heston Kirkchad. Um, Gunnar Henderson was down there, who was also part of the 60-man player pool. But for the most part, we're talking like lower-level guys, some um, some Latin players who hadn't been able to play competitively this year at all uh, before, due, you know, due, due to the lockdown. Um, some organizational guys, some depth pieces, um, really just players that the Orioles wanted to get off the couch and get their hands on, you know, before the season, but before the year was up in some capacity. Uh, and what I've heard from people who were down there were, were, was that the Balmer injury was the only major injury. Um, that was the first thing. And the second thing was a lot of praise for several members of the 2020 draft class, especially Jordan Westberg. Okay. Um, the O's supplemental first round pick. Um, I heard he had probably the best camp of anyone down there. Uh, really impressed the Orioles with his power to all fields, um, with his athleticism up the middle, um, with just how polished he is um, in kind of an all around standpoint. The Orioles believe, I, I believe they got him with the 31st pick, something like that, 32nd like pick. That, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the Orioles think that he was a top 15 pick guy. So they think he was a total steal where they got him, and then they really loved what they saw from him this month at the instructional camp. They also raved about Gunnar Henderson, their supplemental first-round pick from two years ago. Um, they drafted him when he was 17 out of high school in Alabama, and in the year and a half since, uh, they, says, they say that he has grown uh, leaps and bounds from a physical standpoint, and they rave about the improvements he's made in his power, especially to the right side. Um, you know, I've heard comparisons to Corey Seager wow. um, with Gunnar Henderson. He's a young kid. He's big, really athletic. Um, the Orioles have been moving him around the infield a little bit, uh, even sprinkling in some time in the outfield. That was another interesting thing that they did at the instructional camp. They had so many guys down there, and they had to get they had to spread out at bats, right? So they they played a lot of players in positions that they maybe wouldn't have from a developmental standpoint during a normal season. Um, a lot of the middle infielders got reps in center field just to get more at-bats. You know, um, Some of the uh, corner infielders got reps in the corner outfield. They really moved guys around a lot. Even a guy like Gunnar Henderson, who's a shortstop prospect, he got some game reps in center field, which you know, maybe doesn't mean anything going forward, but is also part of this like organizational kind of philosophy where we want to draft athletes. We want guys who can play all over the field if they have to, not because they can't play anywhere, because we have guys who can play anywhere and everywhere. Um, and if you look at the teams that contend and, and, and win World Series, that's what the Dodgers have, right? That's what the Rays have. They have interchangeable parts, not, part, not a team of utility players, but teams of high-level athletes. Who, of high-level baseball players who can just play all over the field and excel there. So I think that was one of the takeaways from that camp. Um, another was 
was how well D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez pitched, not only in inter-squad action, but against other teams. The Orioles played uh, scrimmage games against the Rays and the Pirates as well, and both D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez really impressed. Um, now the, organiza- the, the challenge for the organization is how do we place these guys, right, next year? What does a minor league season look like next year in general, and where do these guys go? given the weirdness of 2020 and how much did that, did that affect their development? And it's going to be a fascinating question that I think different clubs are going to handle in different ways. Um, and it might be the next market inefficiency, at least in the short term, which clubs from a development standpoint were able to weather this storm better than others. And the Orioles think that they're on the right track there. Well, it certainly sounds like it, and you're not the first person I've heard rave about uh, Gunnar Henderson. So that's certainly exciting to hear, and also exciting to hear about Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, because those three guys are a big part of the Orioles' future and a big part of this rebuild coming to fruition. So, Joe, we got to get a break. We've really enjoyed having you on. A lot of quality stuff about the Orioles. Thank you so much for giving us some time today. Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, have a good one. All right, you do the same. Have a great weekend. That was Joe Trezza, Orioles beat writer for MLB.com. Show's running a little long, but that's nothing new here on the Bat Around. Uh, before we get to our final break, I just want to ask you if you need your fantasies fulfilled. Or do you at least need your fantasy football lineup filled? Because Pressbox's own Ken Zalas is the number three ranked fantasy expert in the entire country. And he joins Glenn and Kyle every Tuesday at 11.30 a.m. for the Pressbox Fantasy Football Show. Listen to the show at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio or watch the show and get your own fantasy questions in at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. That's the Pressbox Fantasy Football Show with Ken Zalas every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. And that's brought to you by CC. BC, Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. And speaking of football, if you can't be there this year for Baltimore football games, the next best thing is to at least be with each other virtually to talk about them with Press Boxes Project Game Day. Glenn Clark is with you at halftime of every game, and he's showing he's joined post game by a panel of experts, which will include Ken Zalas and the NFL chick Sarita Hubbard. Find all shows at Facebook.com slash Pressbox Sports and post game at PressboxOnline.com slash radio. Come vent your frustrations, sing the praises of the purple and black, or explain why everything is the ref's fault all season long. Tomorrow, Glenn and KZ are with you for the big Baltimore Pittsburgh showdown. That's Pressbox's Project Game Day every game day this season. Brought to you by Wise Markets and the U.S. Army. We are going to get our final break here in the Chesapeake Employers Insurance Studio. And when we come back, our final take to rake and the final take to rake results. We're going to talk a little bit about some Ravens football. Big matchup coming up after the break. Since masks are a part of our lives now and probably will be for a while, we might as well wear masks that celebrate our hometown and the teams and athletes we love. Pressbox is offering three different types of masks, including a purple and orange Maryland flag pattern 20-inch neck gaiter, plus a Celebrate 8 purple neck gaiter honoring the MVP quarterback, and an over-the-ear two-ply Maryland flag mask featuring a faded version of the iconic state flag. These are decorative masks. They're not CDC approved, but they are perfect 
perfect for hanging out and watching games this fall while supporting your favorite teams and being respectful of those around you. Get your masks right now at PressBoxOnline.com masks. That's PressBoxOnline.com masks to get yours now. If you're looking to make an impact, there's no better place to do that than the U.S. Army. Whether your goal is to fight and cure deadly diseases, develop technologies, or seek adventures across the globe, the Army is where all of that can happen, and so much more. The Army is a team of a million individuals working together to take on the most complex problems in the nation and the world, and to win. Ask yourself, what's your warrior? Go to army.com slash Baltimore to find out. To learn more, contact your local Army recruiter and find us on social media at U.S. Army Baltimore. Hey, Dad, can we try one of those hoagie things? (sighs) Sorry, son. We aren't hoagie people. What do you mean? Son, we're Royal Farms sub people, like my daddy was and his daddy before him, like you and me and all the folks we know. Gee, Dad, I never thought about it like that. So you're saying hoagie people are... Aliens, son. They're aliens. <laughs> Royal Farm subs are Baltimore's best. Real fresh, real fast. Royal Farms. Need your fantasies fulfilled, or do you need your fantasy football lineup filled anyway? I'm Ken Zalis, and if you missed it, I was Fantasy Pro's number three ranked fantasy expert in the entire country last year. And I'm with you every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. for the PressBox Fantasy Football Show. Listen to the show at PressBoxOnline.com slash radio, or watch the show and get your fantasy questions in at Facebook.com slash PressBoxSports. That's the PressBox Fantasy Football Show with me, Ken Zalis, every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. Brought to you by C. CCBC, Wise Markets, Glory Days Grill, and the U.S. Army. For more than 100 years, Chesapeake Employers Insurance has been helping Maryland businesses keep their workers safe. With competitive pricing and an AM Best, A- financial strength rating, it's no surprise that Chesapeake Employers is Maryland's largest writer of workers' comp insurance. At the end of every workday, someone's waiting for your safe return. Connect with your agent or visit CEIWC.com. The latest edition of PressBox is available now. On the cover, we celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Ravens Super Bowl 35 championship run with Ray Lewis, Brian Billick, Trent Dilfer, Jonathan Ogden, and more helping to explain how the magical season happened. Also inside, Todd Karpovich profiles Ryan Mountcastle and the role he can play as a cornerstone for the Orioles' rebuild. PressBox is available for free at over 500 area locations, including 60 Royal Farm stores. Also, you can always find the entire edition, as well as the best daily coverage of the Orioles, Ravens, and Terps at PressBoxOnline.com. All right. Thanks for sticking with us here past the 12 o'clock hour on the bat around here on Halloween. Happy Halloween to everybody. Zach, you got any uh, costume parties you're going to? You're going to go trick-or-treating tonight? You're a little, you're, you're a young guy. I'm not going trick-or-treating. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you could still go. You could, st- you could, you could still pass. Hold on to that youth as long as you can, man. I'm telling you, it's fleeting. So, uh, well, welcome back to the bat around for our final segment. We are going to do take to rake. And Zach... You took Mookie Betts, and I took uh, Corey Seager. And this was about as close as it could get. Now, Mookie Betts' batting average left a little bit to be desired, but 
He was uh, 7 for 26, which is a 269 batting average, two home runs, three RBIs, four stolen bases, five runs scored. For all intents and purposes, he had a great World Series. He was a catalyst in Game 6 to help get that rally going in the sixth inning there for the Dodgers when they scored two runs. He homered again in the in the, uh, in the the eighth inning to put the game on ice. Uh, it's a 3-1 victory. But Corey Seager went 8 for 20. He batted 400, two home runs of his own. Uh, five RBIs. He had one stolen base, which is neither here nor there, but seven runs scored, and he was named World Series MVP. So even though Mookie Betts was a great pick and most weeks would have won, you can't beat the guru, my man. You, you can't do it. I, I, I take home another one, and that brings the final tally for 2020 take to rake down to through 13 weeks, and it was all thir- only doing 13 weeks because of the truncated season. I had five wins. You had three. Our guests, which were Eric Arditi, Glenn Clark, and Matt Kremnitzer, were the three guest winners. They won three. And Vasilios, my original co-host, who may have run away with it uh, if you hadn't taken over co-hosting duties, he had two wins in his three weeks co-hosting the show. So Vasilios, unfortunately, didn't get an opportunity to kind of... uh, to kind of see where he could go with that. He got off to a really hot start. But somebody had to win multiple in the first three weeks because there was only two guys picking. So, But I win, take the rake for the year with five wins, two more than anybody else. Um, and I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just happy. I like winning. I'm a competitive guy. That's why I'm in sports journalism. Um, for some reason, we didn't put anything on the line for take the rake. There was no nothing to win here, which is something that we are going to, um, to rectify next season um we're not going to put money on it i don't know if we're allowed to i don't want to get anybody in trouble we'll come up with something over the off season that we can bet on for take to rake whether it's a weekly thing or whether it's just whoever wins for the whole season maybe this time next year you know you'll have to wear some underwear on your head for for a show or something or, or vice versa you know what i mean who knows have, not, to, have to wear a yankees jersey next year I, I like that no see i thought about that i thought about that but i don't want to look at a yankees jersey for two hours I don't want to do it. Good you know, it's, it's bad enough that, I, that in a 162-game season, I have to watch 19 games of them. I don't want to look at you wearing a Yankees jersey. And I, I won't make you do that. It's got to be something we both can kind of laugh at and enjoy. Who's laughing at a Baltimore fan wearing a Yankees jersey other than a Yankees fan? So I'm not going to give them the benefit there. Um, that's going to do it for the baseball portion of the bat around. Uh, we have... You know, the, nobody's kicking us out of the studio. So if you want to stick around for a little bit, we're going to talk a little bit about this big Ravens game coming up tomorrow. Dude, I am nervous. I am nervous. I was nervous before the Chiefs game, but I thought the Ravens were going to win, and they came out and got their butts whooped on national television. Steelers are the only undefeated team in the NFL. The Ravens are coming off a bye, and they are, I believe, 10-2 and under John Harbaugh. Yep. After a bye. Um, so that's going for the Ravens. They got Yanni Kingakwe uh, as a new pass rusher to pair with Matthew Judon there and Pernell McPhee and Calais Campbell. He's he's reunited with Calais Campbell, with the, who he played in the AFC Championship game just uh, three years ago with um, for Jacksonville. I'm still nervous. The Steelers are, are, are firing on all cylinders right now. They have a great defense. The Ravens' defense is ranked number one in, in the NFL, but the Steelers are right there neck and neck with them. What are you What are you looking for in this game tomorrow? 
I'm just as nervous as you are. You know, the Steelers are a good team. They're the best team they've been in a long time. You know, Mason Rudolph last year was not going to take them to the playoffs. He struggled. He wasn't a very good quarterback. And neither right. was Duck Hodges. Right. But Big Ben's back, and he's not the same quarterback he once was. He's a short passer now. He doesn't really throw much deep at all. I think the Ravens have got to play at the line of scrimmage. They can't sit back. They can't drop back in coverage as much. They've got to sit at the line of scrimmage and play zone down at the bottom, cover the flats, cover the middle of the field, and make sure no tight end gets over the middle, make sure no receivers can get some out routes to you in the flats. I think you just sit low and make Ben throw deep. And if you make Ben throw deep, I think they'll have a successful day. I'm nervous, though, because i I just not sure if our offense, the, the Raven offense, is going to be able to get it going against the Steeler defense. Steeler defense, best pass rushing team in the league. They've, you know, TJ Watt, Bud Dupree, they're incredible. They're incredible. They get to the quarterback very quick. Even when you run the ball, they just swarm to the ball. You get maybe two, three yards. They're a great defense. The Ravens offense hasn't looked, you know, so in sync at all this year. You know, they've had two weeks going to the lab and to figure things out. I trust Harbaugh. I love Harbaugh. And I, I you know, I think that him and Greg Roman have, have changed some things. I hope they've changed some things. But, you know, I, I do worry about this offense going up against a really, really good Steeler defense. You know, it's crazy because we all have the same concerns about the Ravens' offense, and yet this team has scored 30 points or more in four of their five victories. Uh, and they've scored 20 points or more uh, in an NFL high, something like 28 or 29 straight games, something ridiculous, uh, which is, I think now they're just a game or two off the NFL record for that. Um, so... I, Look, I don't like that Mark Ingram is injured. Uh, Mark Ingram's a guy you want on the field, but the fact that he is injured affords J.K. Dobbins more opportunities. And I will tell you till I'm blue in the face that J.K. Dobbins is the best and most explosive, explosive, explosive offensive player that you have on that team, not named Lamar Jackson. And the more opportunities he gets with the ball in his hands, the better. I don't know that they'll be able to run the ball with much success tomorrow, but I do think that they're going to have some passes in the in the game for for Dobbins. I expect him to get 15 touches. He got 11 last week after Ingram left the game with an injury, or two weeks ago, excuse me. I expect him to get more touches. I expect him to get Duvernay and even James Prochet uh, involved more in the offense because teams are keying in on uh, on Hollywood Brown and Mark Andrews right now. Devin Bush is out for the year. He uh, he tore his ACL, I believe. Yeah. So he's out for the year. That that helps in the middle of the field. Helps in the run game. Helps Mark Andrews get open and uh, catch some more balls. I think they get Andrews involved early and often tomorrow. I'm looking at maybe six to eight catches for Andrews tomorrow. My prediction. Look, I don't like making predictions in these games. I I I get on social media and I see Steelers fans talking trash and I see Ravens fans talking trash. I don't know how anybody from any team can talk trash about this rivalry. They're, since 1999, they're 23-23 and 23 against each other. Steelers scored 19.5 points. Ravens scored 20.5 points. So it's like, pick your poison here. Uh, I, how any team's fan can talk trash to the other team's fan base is beyond me. Predicting this game gives me physical anxiety. But I said on my show, The Football, Friendsly, the Football Frenzy, shameless self-plug alert, that the Ravens are going to win this game 31-30. to That's what I got. And it, two great defenses, but I think that they're going to have to put up points. I'm looking at 31-30 to here. Ravens pulling it out because they need to. For no other reason than Lamar has to go out there and prove. And he did it last year, but he needs to prove that he can do it this year. Win a big game. They got mollywopped by... 
by the Kansas City Chiefs on national television. I think that if he wants people to, if he and the Ravens want people to take them seriously as Super Bowl contenders, they have to win the big games, and that starts tomorrow. I'm going 23-21 Baltimore, and I, I can't pick against Baltimore. I, I just can't pick against us. You know, it's 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 the team we love. We 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 don't want to go against them, and you know the Steelers. Great team, nothing against them. I just think the Ravens will end up pulling this one out by very, very small margin. You know, maybe a Justin Tucker field goal, something along those lines. But you know, I'm nervous for it. But it'll be a really, really fun game to watch. It'll be a really fun game to watch. It's going to have anxiety, heart palpitations on the edge of your seat all game. That's what I'm expecting. That's what we get. Hopefully, the Ravens come out on top. Did not realize we're already at almost 20 past the hour, Zach. You got to go home. I got to get home and get ready for work, folks. Thanks for tuning into the bat around and indulging us with our Ravens talk. Um, not just this week, but every week since the football season started. We will. Again, programming note, we are not doing a show next week. I'm going to be out of town, so you get a break from us. We'll be back in two weeks with some more great guests, talking more Orioles and Major League Baseball. Until then, thanks for tuning in. We'll all talk soon.